Hi everybody, welcome to another uh, perfectly flawless launch of the Stratosphere Lounge uh, experience. Hope everybody's doing well. Um, uh, last time was my first time back after being uh, out at the Wuhan Weight Loss Clinic. And uh, just ended up talking about a bunch of cool stuff. So tonight we're just going to do just a minute or two or three or four. And then we'll get to questions and uh, see if we can get a little caught up there. <coughs> Excuse me. Going to be a little more of that uh, too. Uh, I don't know if you guys have been noticing this or feeling this, but it's like, this is how things go. You know, the Soviet Union was there for what, almost 80 years. And uh, then it wasn't. And like that, overnight. And it feels kind of like that's what's happening with uh, with COVID. It, it just, that's just how things feel to me that that so many people are getting so sick so fast um, that uh, that essentially th 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 this thing is going to be largely, you know, over. Um, Wizard says, uh, we hear we have 80% of people three times back and they're all catching Omicron. Government is desperate to hide this. Yes, exactly. So all across the world now, I, on, the, on the way in, I heard that France reported 463,000 cases of Omicron a month. Was it a bad week? One day. One day. So a couple things to say here. First of all, uh, from a larger perspective, yeah, and, and, and uh, Fiery Waco points out the UK dropped all the mandates, no, no more vaccine passports, no more mask requirements. Germany and Brazil says wizard. Here's the thing, um, on the on the larger perspective, kind of the you know the 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 Jesus plane uh, that I so rarely find myself on. Uh, this is nothing but good news, you know. This is this is what happens. This is how pandemics go. You get a, a particularly virulent um, disease, which this wasn't. But as time goes on, the more uh, lethal strains of the virus disappear because they kill the people that are their hosts. And what you get is you get a, uh, a mutation towards more um, contagious, but much less dangerous. And AIDS looks like AIDS did pretty much the same thing. Uh, and. I remember uh, I saw Magic Johnson on TV not too long ago, and he's looking pretty good. And I remember when he got, when he announced that he had AIDS, I was still a limo driver, so that must have been 91, 92, somewhere in there. Uh, and he's still with us, and the reason he's still with us is that the AIDS that Magic Johnson got wasn't the AIDS that killed so many people. It's It's the same basic virus, just not nearly so deadly because the deadly versions died out with the people that it killed too. But it seems like everywhere, it does, it, it feels to me like the wheels are finally coming off of this thing. So on a, on a high level, that's great. It's, it's the best possible outcome other than it not ever getting out of the, uh, you know, Victrola factory in the first place. Uh, 
But if that happens, then this is good because everybody's getting sick and everybody's going to have natural immunity. And, 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 and all over the world, this seems to be happening. And on a much lower plane, which is the plane I usually operate on, I just can't help but feel like they, they know it's over and they, they don't seem like there's much left that they can do. Because essentially, gang, here's how it works. This is why I think it's essentially over politically. From the day it happened, uh, let me just scroll up here because our, our, our stalwart Dave Big Booty always uh, gives me the number here. Uh, 675 days ago of 15 days to flatten the curve. Um, during the last 675 days, the entire thing has been, here's this horrible disease, and so do what we say, otherwise you're going to die like these people we're showing you here with these ever-increasing bar numbers and graphs and all the rest of it. The problem is that this Omicron variant is so contagious and spreading so fast that the half of the population that bought into that, they're getting sick now because they were the ones that were always triple careful, you know, three masks on and kiss grandma on the, you know, on the Zoom call, you know, and streaming funerals and that crowd, which has been so hysterical, is now coming down with it, despite however many Victrolas they may have. And even worse for them, even worse for them, for them, not for humanity or all of us. Like I said, this is not the higher plane that I sometimes can at least see. Unfortunately for the half of the country that's been terrified of this, they're getting sick with COVID now too. And, and the, the tragedy is they're, that they're surviving it. I don't mean that in a na nasty way, like it's a tragedy for me that they're surviving it. It's a tragedy for them that they're surviving it. Um, it's, it's got to be tough. We, we talk about the, the side effects of this, uh, well, I mean, we not meaning the media or anybody, but the side effects, you know, the, the suicides, the business closures, the, the, the spousal abuse, the child abuse, alcoholism increase, the, the, all of the undetected cancer, all, the whole thing. It makes me wonder what will the psychological impact be when people who have invested so much in this thing being this, uh, this fatal angel of death that's just hovering outside their door, what is the psychological effect going to be when they find out that it's actually the you know, pigeon of death? Because it is definitely it is definitely coming apart for them, and it's coming apart for them everywhere. You know, not not just through the, all the origins of, of where the Victrola might have come from, and all of the stuff that we've been talking about for two years. Honestly, it started in middle of March, uh, twenty twenty, and that we're, we're rapidly approaching the two year anniversary of that, and. By the beginning of April, three, four weeks in, by the end, I did the Coronasphere Lounge for 30 days 
every day. And by the time we were a third of the way through that, we had most of the answers. And by the time we were 30 days into it, nothing that I believed after 30 days of this is any different than what I believe after 675 days of that. And thanks again, I don't know if you're watching, to um, to Lord Bios, who uh, got me out of a lot of uh, trouble, certainly helped me an awful lot understanding the, the details. I think I got the main picture, but there you go. So what are all these people going to do? Well, by happy coincidence, I heard that yet another poll came out saying that it's the biggest shift towards Republicans in the history of polling. I think it was Gallup this time. 14-point swing, a 12-point swing. That's now. What's going to happen when the people that have been told for two years that this is a death sentence if you don't wear the mask, what's going to happen when they get sick and recover? Some of them will not change their minds. There's no question that's, that, the, that the, the emotional investment that they made in this, you just, that's just... For many of them, that's just an unbreakable bond. But it does make me wonder if there's not a significant percentage of the population that's going to basically say, well, we've been told this by uh, the news media, which we trusted, and turns out that was all wrong. And all of these conservative yahoos who've been saying, no, just it's deadly for certain kinds of people. And with, you know, if you happen to have four, comorbidity, four comorbidities, then you probably should stay far away from COVID. But of course, if you've got four comorbidities, 2.6 was the average a year ago, and I've heard it's up to like four now or something, then you are in real danger anyway. So what happens to them? You know, what happens to them um, when when it when it did that? Ah, now we're getting some interesting stats. Merlin, uh, Merlin Stark says, I've got several former Democrat friends who joined our team. Well, there we go. One anecdote, and it's proven. One internet commenter has said that this theory of mine has actually been observed, so obviously it's, it's proven. Now, being flipped because I'm in kind of a flip mood. Uh, so, uh, I quick opportunity to brag as usual, and then we'll get on. We'll get to getting one of the, uh, onto the questions here. But my friend Bert Rutan, and that's the bragging part. I, I never tire of being able to say that. Uh, did spend his entire life basically analyzing data. And now, a lot of that data he generated himself because a lot of that data was from airplanes that he designed and so on, but you've got theory and then you've got practice, and when you build an airplane, try to fly it, you go out there and you look at data. And it's it's not just little data points like me talking about, like, uh, oh, you know, the, the, you know the, the last Jedi. No, when I talk about data, I'm talking about just columns and columns and columns of numbers. So, I don't know, three days ago, four days ago, I get an email from Bert saying, hey, I hope you're feeling better. Listen, um, are you sure that it was Omicron that you came down with? Because I'm looking at the numbers and the spread and stuff, and it didn't seem very likely and so on. I thought, well, there's the, there's the big brain at work. The guy looks at data and discovers the patterns that are actually there. He did that with the whole global warming thing, too. And I said, no, no, I, I made a joke about it being Omega. I might have said Omicron in the first of the two updates I did, but I'm virtually positive it was Delta because it just laid us low. Natasha and I just, oh, hey, baby, by the way, hello. Uh, just laid low. So we, we were pretty sure it was Delta. And then he wrote me back something, and and it was a sentence that just knocked me out. And, it, and, it, and I think about it several times a day. 
he wrote me back and, and this is the first thing he wrote. He said, well, first of all, congratulations, your pandemic is over. What else do you read after that? Uh, how brilliantly is that put? You know, congratulations, not the pandemic is over, your pandemic is over. You now have natural immunity, which we fought for, by the way, every single one of my T cells has got the frickin' Well, they were all awarded the, you know, the, the Navy Cross and, and many of them, you know, they're, they're pushing Silver Star, one or two of them, potential Medal of Honor winners. So, so we earned it, but the, isn't, that a, isn't that a great, isn't that a great sentence? Your pandemic is over. Because while there's plenty of evidence of people having problems with uh, Omicron uh, coming, leaping out of them, even if they have three or four Victrolas in their living room, I haven't heard any cases of, of Omicron burning through natural immunity. And frankly, if you got your natural immunity before Omicron, you're probably not even going to notice Omicron because Delta was no fun at all. And this is where I get to really build up a serious, murderous rage at my, my nephew, Ashton, who was the best kid in the entire world. And that rotten little bastard with his 13-year-old immune system, which got in the car, got sick that night, threw up one time, laid on the couch for... 15 hours and then after that is running around doing these virtual reality games, curse him and his 13-year-old immune system, which essentially just said to this virus, oh, come on, really? You know, now? Oh, all right, fine, all right, let's do it now. Um, so anyway, there you go. So my pandemic is over. Uh, my wife's pandemic is over. Uh, if you have contracted COVID and, and survived it. But I'd like to talk now to the people who didn't survive it. Uh, no, then your, your pandemic is over. Now the question is, when will the politics catch up with you? Uh, I live in the most repressive state in the nation. There are, we've been turned away from restaurants, turned away once, just, no, I'm not gonna do it. I'm not showing you papers and, and, and simply turned around on a few other cases. But what happens when the politics of that catches up to it? What happens when everybody is able to say, let me rephrase that. What happens when everybody in the world, let me try that a third time. What happens when Bert Rutan can say to everybody in the world what he said to me? Congratulations, your pandemic is over. Um, and then we're already starting to see signs that the press is backtracking and governments are backtracking and all the rest of it. Now, if it turns out that downstream there are a number of serious side effects, then, then that party shift is going to get even bigger. So anyway, enough about that. Um, still got a little bit of a tickle cough. It's probably mostly just nerves and, like I said, not really related to being sick. Um, okay, so uh, the second thing uh, briefly is... Um, I'm going to spend very little time on this, but it's got to do with the state of the animation. So finished chapter one. We previewed it to the live audience here on the Stratosphere Lounge. So maybe, I don't know, maybe 100 people have seen it, something like that, all together. F fewer than 100, I'm sure. 
And chapter one was finished, finished. It was pretty much done. And it remains done. And this happened in mid-November, I want to say somewhere in there. Finished, finished. And then I thought, okay, I've uh, I've purchased the, uh, the uh, Wizard asked how the table read is. It's, it's, it's edited, but I've still got a bunch of stuff I need to insert into it. So I ordered a, a much better motion capture suit than the one that you can see here. And uh, there was a three-month delivery delay. So I said, oh, I can't wait three months. So then two or three months go by. And then after deciding I couldn't wait for three months, I ordered it, which meant another three months. Um, and again, I'll keep this brief. Because every single motion in that animation had to be built out of existing animations and had to constantly just move things around just a little bit to get the... Because I, 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 if I've got some guy who swings a sword, bends down, and then stands up and waves, i got to find you know four, four or five animations for that, and i got to put them together in such a way. Um, so uh, I was worried about that, actually, political animal, but it turns out it's not. It's not, on a, it's not lying in a, in a culvert someplace downtown ripped out of a Union Pacific train. So that, is, that was the part that was so time-consuming and essentially just soul-destroying in terms of like, oh, my God, this is so tedious. Now, with the, the new suit and the new software, by the way, which is really, really good at locking the feet down and stuff, now all I have to do is say, all right, I can look in Unreal and say I've got to, I've got to walk forward for... Um, <laughs> I'm just going to have to swallow it and deal with it now. And I have to walk forward for one and a half meters... And then I'll have to make a left turn and then walk another two meters. That's what I see on the little squares in Unreal. I come into the studio, I mark it out with a yardstick close enough, and then I simply record it and I drop it on the scene and it's done. Ta-da! Um, so anyway, um, I got an email in December, uh, which went with the rest of all those emails that came in December. But after I got well enough to, to read, because frankly, clicking things was just too exhausting. Uh, I got a message from the, from this company saying, uh, well, because the whole thing was due to supply chain shortages of chips and stuff. Okay, uh, it's going to ship in the first week in January, and um, you should be seeing it soon, I thought. Aces. So after the end of the first week in January, I'm going home like a kid, you know, it's waiting for his, um, waiting for his uh, Polaris submarine to come from Boy's Life, looking for this package, no sign of it. So I finally emailed them. People who sent out the, hey, it'll be here soon, and uh, get no response from them. And I talked to a customer service rep who had asked a lot of questions about, and she said, it looks like it's not going to be there till end of February. And I said back, that's a tough pill to swallow, because I've basically been putting this thing on hold, waiting for this stuff to arrive. Then I got a second email from the original people who said, no, we think it's going out end of January. In any event, it's not here, and it'll be a little bit. So... I'm gonna get gonna get back on that, but that's why you haven't really seen much in the way of development. Um, it's just I've been waiting and waiting and waiting for this thing, and it's supposed to have been here by now. And uh, they told me it would be here by now, but it may be as late as the end of February. And when I wrote them back, I said, "Okay, look, I understand all this. Not happy about it, but I understand it. How?" firm are you on the end of February because a month ago you told me first week in January the company did. I said, we got the units, we're packing them and shipping them in order. Okay. So 
things will change then. And one of the things that I really want to do first is this whole live streaming thing where it's doing facial motion capture and gloves and the body. And I can just be a, you know, I don't know why I can't shake the idea of doing stuff as an astronaut driving a rover on the moon. I just, I don't know, maybe because that's easy to do. That'll do it. Um, for the uh, pre-question uh, part of our show. Now, uh, when I made the announcement on Facebook, I said, and uh, and questions will be answered and the peasants will become less revolting. There's stacks of questions, didn't answer any of them last week. Trying to catch you guys up on what, uh, you know, true tales of adventure I've been through. So what we'll do is we'll go to billwhittle.com first. We'll knock those down. And uh, depending on what time it is after that, um, we will do Facebook questions, but I'm sure we'll be able to get to some of them anyway. So, and, and by the way, um, I'm going to take Natasha's advice and the advice of many other people who have been, um, oh, happy birthday to Buzz Aldrin, uh, a political animal reminded me, 92 years old. All the moonwalkers died of old age. Who, I bet they wouldn't have believed him, believed me if I told them that. Um, anyway. Uh, I'm going to take Natasha's advice and the advice of uh, several other people, and I'm going to force myself, if I can, to punch through these things because I always feel like, you know, if I take a question, I've got to have a, you know, 15, 20-minute answer. And then I realized, no, actually, people just want to, they want to hear their question answered. So we will see. Uh, so... Um, Here's a post that says, Bill, Steve, Scott, Bueller, Bueller. Let's just see if that's a question or. Okay, here we go. Um, looks like this is just one. And then, and then we have the actual question uh, thing. So this is from Ronnie Rowe. Uh, Bill, I joined months ago because I wanted to ask a question, but for one reason or another, it wasn't member time, wasn't gotten to her or something else. I'm, I'm first of all, Ronnie, I'm Rodney, Rodney Rowe. I'm genuinely sorry about that. It's the nature of the stratosphere launch to meander itself into um, oblivion. So uh, apologies there. Now, what I would like to know is why do you not do a weekly stream where people can ask questions through Super Chats? I know I would gladly donate five to 10 bucks to get a 30 second response to a question. Don't give me ideas, man. Actually, you know what? Give me ideas, man. Um, that way we could get the interaction that is desperately missing from the channel and we can further support the show. I would love to have Scott and Steve on our rotation hosting weekly lives as, live as well. You can use uh, Streamlabs or Entropy if you don't want to give uh, Susan a cut of the chats. Do you all have too much money already or don't or just you don't like the idea of super chats? Love you all stuff. Thanks. Well, you know, I've been asked many questions on this show over the course of the years. And I think uh, do we all have too much money here at BillWhittle.com? It's probably the easiest one I've ever had to answer. Uh, on reflection, uh, Rodney, I would say, uh, yeah, I think it's reasonable for me to say at this point to, to leap to this. Um, no, we don't have too much money here. On the contrary. So a lot of people in the comment section live are going, yeah, more live streams. Okay. Uh, now, the Super Chat stuff that I've seen, I saw on, um, I saw, certainly saw it on the Friday night show with um, Doomcock. And I may have seen it on the, the live show with, uh, with Gary at Nerdrotic, but I know I've seen it at, at Doomcock. And I imagine that's done through um, 
YouTube. So maybe it's time to stream these things through YouTube. I don't know. Uh, I think what we could certainly do is um, we could stream them on YouTube and then, you know, archive them on a on a separate. I mean, I'm recording. I'm recording this show on two different things now. I always record everything twice, well, simultaneously, in case one of them goes out. But um, yeah, and you know, another thing that people have been um, I'm not trying to take credit for this. On the contrary, I'm I'm taking culpability for this. A number of people have been saying, "Hey, man, you really need to look into local.com." You know, where people pay to talk to you. Which <laughs> I uh, I would have done that a long time ago if the idea didn't seem so kind of nuts to me. Um, so uh, we'll see. Um, Political Animal says guys like Doomcock and Critical Drinker make crazy money on live stream, but then questions become kind of pay to play and the members are already paying. Now that is an excellent point. And to be perfectly honest with you, that is basically been my attitude. Just, just to clear this up and then we'll move on. Imagine, and I'm just going to increase the exposure. I feel still a little, little dark. Eh, it's a little much, maybe it's better. Just to clear this up. Um, I absolutely, I have this, as far as stress for lounge only is concerned, I've got these two conflicting things working. One of them is without question, the members deserve um, something for their money in addition to the shows and, and access and things like that, having their questions answered first, the forum and so on are the least we could do. It's the members who told us that they didn't want to have a members only right angle. We, for years, did, did uh, a backstage show for members and then we did four shows. Each one of us brought a show and then we rotated and one of us brought two. And for years, that was a members only show until finally the members just wrote enough. So these are actually good episodes. You should release them to the public. That's what we're paying for. Um, so that kind of generosity just blew me away. But back to Stratosphere Lounge. So here's the problem. On one hand, yes, absolutely. Um, I should be doing the members questions first because they're they're paying to keep the lights on. That's not just, it's not even like buying first class ticket. That's like, this is how you pay for the, you know, for the, you gotta pay the guys doing the dry cleaning if you, if you know, if you want your dry cleaning done. So, so there's that. Um, but on the other hand, and this is why I guess I've, I've always been kind of so blurry about this. On the other hand, this show precedes if it doesn't precede the membership, then it's awful close to it and has been a Facebook uh, question thing. And um, and so I, I since it already was that, I, I didn't want to make it now it's only members only that can ask questions on the stress-free lunch because from the very beginning, it was it was people who just didn't want to do it on Facebook. Now, uh, Wizard13 says, a Drinker does a second uh, streaming calls open bar to catch up on Super Chats. That's how he balances it. Uh, and furthermore, um, he's got uh, at least one other channel after Drinker After Hours and so on. A lot of guys have second channels. I was on the verge of opening up that second channel and all of the Unreal Engine stuff, all of the pop culture stuff is going to put there. And then, you know, we got sick and stuff. So, um, so that's not only in the pipeline, that's pretty much immediate. Look, I, I think one more, this is Thursday. We record these on Thursday. Today's the... 20th. Um, I think by next week, 
it's not that I wasn't feeling healthy enough to to go ahead and release the chapter one of the animation, at least to the members. It's that it's that this thing takes so much of your mental energy. It just drags you down, just tired all the time. Um, so in any event, uh, we will we will do that. Um, and uh, and I will look more specifically into Super Chats because to my utter amazement, the reaction in the comment section live, and most of you watch this on YouTube, but we, we love to have our regular crowd here live, and, and they're all saying, do the Super Chat stuff. So I suppose that's what I will do by gum. And I'll probably register on local doubt, you know, as well. Uh, I'll tell you one thing. If I do, and I probably will, as I say, uh, go to local where uh, the only thing I can promise you is I, I, I can't promise you that you will get your money's worth, but I can promise you that you will get a lot of my time. Uh, because uh, there you go. Uh, Tiki Rocket says live, uh, everyone here, Bill included, needs to listen to the Ruthless podcast from today. I don't know what that is. Um, <laughs> Wazard said, uh, Bill, my father got his, got the first COVID strain, which was the worst one during his sixth cancer while recovering from surgery and survived. And his comment on it was COVID get in line. Wizard, it's guys like your father who made this a great country, and by God, we owe them better than what we delivered. All right, here we go. Uh, so now we're going to the Stratosphere Lounge questions. This seems like a fair balance to me. I'm going to just move through, get as many questions as I've done as I can, and I'll do the BillWiddle.com questions first, and then we'll go to Facebook. And if we can get them all great, if not, then maybe Super Chat time. By the way, and Natasha pointed this out to me, uh, I really love doing this show. I really do. It's, it's, the, it's certainly the most fun I have during the week. And, um, and the one thing she pointed out to me was a lot of times, especially since, uh, since we got sick, um, it's like, it's like I, I came home after we did Virtue Signal. I come in in the mor morning on Thursdays and do a couple shows. Or, and then I usually just prep them, go home, take a nap for an hour and a half, come back. And it's, and it's been tough to get in here, but Natasha pointed out to me that, that when I do the Stratosphere Lounge, when I come home from doing the Stratosphere Lounge, I am chipper and happy, and she's absolutely right. So uh, there we go. So I could certainly see myself doing more of these things uh, live. Uh, I don't know if they'd all be caught. By the way, I, I, I thought also, um, I actually thought about naming the second channel the Stratosphere Lounge. So maybe I'd do a channel called the Stratosphere Lounge that's nothing but Stratosphere Lounges. So I have, I don't know, three or four channels. Who knows? It's not a bad idea. I just like the sound of it. I re I've always liked the sound of it. All right, moving on. Here we go. So um, 01-2022 Stratosphere Lounge questions. I know I missed a bunch when I was sick. I can't go backwards and forwards at the same time. So forgive me if I missed you, but uh, here we go. All right. I saw people talking about this um, uh, earlier before we started the show. This is from Henry Lumley, who is a reputable Fortunate and a five-star member. Joined a year ago. Thank you, Henry. Thank you for sticking it out. And here's his question. Uh, space junk thought. I was thinking about space junk. We were thinking about space junk all wrong. It's not junk. It's incredibly valuable mass made of precious metals that is currently in orbit. Let's just stop right there and say I've never heard anybody put it that way. But by golly, that is bloody brilliant. I'd See, this is the power of language. 
right? This is the power of language. This is the power of words like sanctuary cities instead of, you know, uh, you know, instead of like holdouts for illegal aliens. This is the power of language. We've always called it space junk, but you're absolutely right. It's not junk. It's some of the most expensive stuff we make. Let's continue. We've paid a huge price to put that mass in orbit. To just throw it into the atmosphere to be melted down and never recovered would be a costly mistake. I wonder how much space hardware is at the bottom of the Indian Ocean. That's where the where America usually deorbits stuff. And the, so the Russians and a bunch of others deorbit their stuff, and it hits a point that's just west of South America. Our goal should be to deorbit and our goal, sorry, should not be to deorbit and lose that valuable material, but to collect and reprocess it in orbit. We need a way to take old and unusable satellite components and melt them if necessary, separate out the component materials, and create material filaments that could be used in an orbiting printer. We have a gold mine orbiting our planet already. We need a way to figure to figure out a way to mine it. 9,700 tons times $5,000 per kilogram comes to a whopping 48 trillion, no, 48 billion 500,000, one more time, 48 billion 500 million dollars. That's what's in orbit now. We should probably figure out a way to make some of that money back. Uh, first of all, Henry, um, uh, if you're watching the show live and even if you're watching it on YouTube, just turn it off right now and, and, and get in touch with Elon Musk immediately. Uh, I have never, ever heard that argument made, and it is, and I will never think about the stuff that's in orbit the same way again, specifically because of that one comment. That is a profoundly insightful comment. Um, the problem with, we did a, a, a couple, I don't know what it was, it might have been a, I think, wasn't it going, the going to Mars is stupid right angle we did a week or two ago. And the question was, well, there was an editorial, a guy wrote that said the going to Mars is stupid. And I thought, oh, great, here's another hippie talking about we should spend the money on, you know, on, on, on free flat screen TVs for the, for the poor. Uh, but he was saying, no, no, the moon base is a better investment. And my response was, well, fortunately, it's not an either or. However, uh, if I had a limited pot of money and Scott came right up and said, yeah, that's the problem. There's no such thing as a limited pot of money. No limited pie will make as much pies as you need, as many pies as you need. So I said, if I had a limited pot of money, I'd do the lunar moon base before I do the Mars mission because that makes the Mars mission much easier. And, and furthermore, Elon Musk isn't talking about going to Mars, planting a flag, and then coming back, which was what Mars missions always were prior to Elon Musk, pretty much that. Uh, the scale, I know people have, a, that people have a lot of problems with, with Elon Musk. And, there's, and there are many things about Elon Musk that you could have, in fact, a problem with. Uh, but I am a big fan of the guy, it's obvious by now, and I'm prefacing, prefacing all of this by saying I know I'm an Elon Musk uh, groupie. But with that said, the scale of his vision is the most impressive thing about Elon Musk. It's not his persistence. It's not his uh, genius. It's not his ability to figure out what not only what technologies are needed, but how to sell them, how to make them interesting, how to make them fun. The scale of his vision is his most amazing aspect because when he talks about 50,000 
Starship launches, you know, or, or 15, I guess it was. I don't I think I got that number wrong. But still, I think it's 15,000 launches to get to Mars. And when you think about the pace of, of what the last 40 years of space exploration has been, 50 years, then you realize the size of what is necessary to really go and not come back. It's 15,000 launches. It's an impossible number. And you say it's an impossible number until you see the, the, the chopsticks at Boca Chica where the thing is already built. They're going to start catching first stages. And he's talking about having a line of second stages and just basically the first stage comes down. Got it. Yep. Move it over here. Fuel the son of a gun. Here's the new one on top while we're fueling it. Send it up again. Turnaround time. He said an hour. Now that, now that is the kind of visionary that actually changes the world. And, and that term is overused, uh, Henry, change the world. That's a, that is... That's the kind of vision, and it's being backed up by not just computer graphics game, that changes, not changes the world in the terms of, wow, we have a better refrigerator now. It changes our society into a space-faring society. That's what it's going to take. I have to get this out. I don't think I've ever talked about it before. But me personally, I just hate the way the Starship looks. I just hate it. Hate it, hate it, hate it, hate it. And there's a simple reason for why I hate the way the Starship looks. Very simple. And that is that every single bad science fiction movie I ever saw in my life before we actually got into space looked like the Starship. Uh, silver rocket that sits on its tail and it's got the thing in the windows. And I cannot help the feeling that it looks like we're going to Mars, but we're going in 1948. Um, but anyway... Some people think it's gorgeous. I do like, I do like the the uh, steering vanes on the top. Looks kind of like a canard, and I like canards because canards are awesome, right? Uh, so anyway, um, there we go. And political animal says it's aerodynamic. It's all of those things, and I think it's just probably like everything else. Elon Musk thought it'd be kind of cool if it looked that way. Uh, Dave Big Booty says my dad was a huge fan of Flash Gordon and Tom Corbett, and he loved watching the rockets land like the shows and he watched as a kid. I remember being heavily influenced by uh, Tintin Goes to the Moon. Tintin is not something that had big presence here in America, but I read it in England and it's a French cartoon and it was very realistically drawn and I thought, there you go. But yeah, to me, it just doesn't look, it just doesn't look real. It doesn't look serious. And whenever I see these fleets of starships going to Mars or whatever, I just think, it strikes me as an incredible lack of imagination, but it's precisely the opposite. It's a tremendous leap of, of imagination. And one final thing I'll say about this is um, we, if you've ever seen the Flash Gordon serials where they're steering the spaceships with, you know, the levers like this, uh, when you look at how ridiculous that is, I realized many, many years ago that when I get a chance to do hardcore science fiction and make it as realistically believable as possible, when it's all said and done, if this ever happens, my version will look just as ridiculous as the Flash Gordon 
version will. We haven't got the faintest idea of what that's actually going to look like, and, and the Starship is, is a great example of that. So that's an excellent point, Henry. I never, ever thought of it before, and I, will, um, and I will continue to think of it that way. Now, you mentioned space junk and people in the comments section earlier, so I'm going to elaborate just a little bit, but I'm going to keep going and move through these things. Um, we are... We are, you know, I'm just trying to think this through. Losing access to outer space is something that could happen in an hour. And when I say losing access for outer space, I mean forever, for, for, for centuries. I forget the name of it. It's, this, it's this, not the cardinal line. It's just something or other. But it basically was called the Cascade. We've talked about it before on the show, and here's how it works. If one satellite collides with another satellite now, dead or alive satellite, probably dead because you can move or uh, living satellites, you can change your orbits, then it's like a shotgun blast, and then that blast goes out, the Kepler syndrome, thank you, uh, bag of spray, then all of those pieces from the two collapsed, uh, cr uh, crashed satellites go out there, and then they hit other pieces of satellites, and then they shatter, and it's very, Kessler, yeah, and it's very much like, thank you, it's very much like the, you, you've got a room full of, the, when they were showing how a nuclear chain reaction worked back on Disney, when people were terrified of things, they would take a, a, a an empty room, fill them full of mouse traps, put a ping pong ball on the, on the, on the, arm of the mousetrap and they would take one ping pong ball and toss it into the room and that would land on one of the mousetraps and that would send that ping pong ball going and it would land on one or two others and the next thing you know the room just goes pop 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 pop, pop done so this is what we're in danger of Wessler Kessler or Kepler Kepler whatever it is that's that syndrome so we're we could lose access to outer space with a chain reaction, and that chain reaction could start, could be happening right now. And the reason it took me a minute to think about this is I was thinking, is there anything that catastrophic that could come without any warning really at all? Now, I couldn't think of anything. You know, our power grid is susceptible, but, you know, you've got a buildup to war, EMP pulse, you know, solar flare, all of that stuff. A solar flare that took out a lot of the, the world's electronics would be catastrophic, but it wouldn't be anything like as bad as 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 this. And to me, this is a great example of us sitting, this is exactly what happened with Challenger, it's exactly what happened with Columbia. We know it's a problem, we're fully aware it's a problem, we know it's a fatal problem, that it is not just a little problem, that the consequences of failure are monumental, and yet we're going to go through every single day pretending like it doesn't happen. We start cleaning this stuff up now, these space resources, because I'm not calling them space junk anymore, thanks to Henry Lonely. If we start cleaning up these space resources now, then I was talking earlier about rather have the moon base. The problem, 3D printing is, is essentially solves everything except for the problem of what do you put into the printer? What are you using as a raw material for this thing to print? And if you're on the lunar surface, you've got the lunar uh, regolith. You got you just got the rocks and the dirt and make stuff out of that. But in orbit around the Earth, where would your raw materials be? Would you have to raise them? Isn't that kind of defeating the point? And and Henry's point is, no. Solve both problems together. Not only do you clean up the orbital space around the Earth and and dramatically lower the chance of this catastrophic event 
but you you use it to to print new stuff. Maybe you use it to print new spaceships to go collect more of this stuff. I think that's really um, really it. it it's um, and Helios says I've underestimated what a major solar flare CME uh, coronal mass ejection would be. Fair enough, but but a but a coronal mass ejection that took out that did that much damage to the earth would be catastrophic and may take a long time to recover from but it would be recoverable because we would be working here on the ground right if you if this cascade effect happens in earth orbit you can't get up there to clean it up this is the thing um that that is is really keeps me up at night is that you know we are one mistake or, or not even a mistake because the chinese and the russians have done this intentionally with, uh, with uh, when they're testing out their anti-satellite weapons. They, you can do that relatively safely if you decide to hit a satellite that's just you know a couple weeks away from re-entering the atmosphere anyway. But we are one missed, we're one roll of the dice away from losing space forever. And once it's gone, you're talking about it being gone for a long time. So yes, Henry, why don't we just go and use this and uh, and take advantage of it and, and not have it be another one of those things where, well, wait, did you see this coming? Oh yeah, yeah, I saw this coming for 50 years, all right, yep. By the way, you may not know this, but, but pretty much half of the stuff that's in orbit are just upper stages of boosters. If you, if you forget about staging, maybe you launch a rocket from Earth and it's got a satellite on the top, right? Let's just say for the sake of the argument, it's the second stage it gets into orbit. If you do that, and you do your eight-minute burn like Columbia or like the shuttle, eight, eight and a half minutes to orbit. Your orbit starts at the Kennedy Space Center, goes around, and ends at the Kennedy Space Center. Doesn't end above the Kennedy Space Center, ends at the Kennedy Space Center. That's what an orbital burn does. It gets you, it gets you up into orbit, around, and then it brings you back to its starting point, which is on the ground at the Kennedy Space Center. So now, um, what has to happen is you got to go halfway and then you fire that rocket again and that circularizes the orbit and then you're good to go. But most of the stuff that's up there that's not working is just boosters. And that's, as Henry pointed out, that's aluminum, probably a fair amount of titanium, all kinds of cool stuff. Moving on, because we're going to cover questions today. Rodney Rowe says, uh, Bill, I joined months ago because I wanted to ask a question, but for one reason or another, it wasn't. Is that what I just answered? Oh, sorry, that was a super chest question, yes. So we're back to Henry Lumley again. Um, breaking the eternal bureaucracy. And this is a long question here. Uh, I was thinking about the idea of the government and its various bureaucracies today. It's like any monopoly without competition. They always start to abuse power, become slow to innovate, slow to change, and arrogant in their position, precisely. So how do we give government competition? The party system can only inject so much competition into the government. Let me interrupt this excellent question by saying, if you haven't seen my latest Moving Back to America called Cerberus, uh, it would be a good time to see it right after this because the entire theme of Cerberus is that somewhere during the last couple years, big business and big government decided we've been fighting each other forever. What, what if we work together? What if we... What if big government is no longer telling big pharma that you can't put this to market? What if big government says to big pharma, we're going to require people to buy your product. We're going to make them, we're going to use the force of law. You're going to be legally required to buy your product. So it's it's one of the better shows I've done, I think, ever. Uh, that's Cerberus. And it's, a, it's up now on BillLittle.com, also on YouTube and so on. <coughs> Excuse me. 
So the party system can only inject so much competition into government. Most of that is for campaign promises that neither side intends on keeping. And with the regulatory state and the eternal bureaucracy, even the competition of the parties is nullified. We have a left-wing administrative state that intentionally undercuts and slow walks the will of the people when they do not agree with the decisions of the electorate, just stating the obvious to get us all on the same page. Okay. And I'm going to paraphrase just a little bit here, but basically what he's saying is that it used to be that, well, this is a direct quote, it used to be a norm that when the government changed hands in an election, the administrative state also changed hands. And this was done away with to the disadvantage of the country. So how do we return to a slightly modified version of that idea? When Ulysses Grant, for example, became president and was inaugurated, Grant moved into the White House and every single one of the people who had been not only in, in, in Andrew Johnson's cabinet, but the entire bureaucracy of Washington, you're all fired. You're all a bunch of losers. That's why we ran against you and won. You're all gone. So that the entire, the entire bureaucracy would change. And that was good for the country because it's this immortal bureaucracy that is essentially what the, the so-called shadow government is. It's a group of elitists who've been in Washington through five, six, seven administrations, don't care what the voters have to say, already figured out they know how to do things better than they do, although if you look at their track record outside of the Beltway, it's not as impressive as, as they might want you to believe. And so they, and so they, they basically change the will of the people incrementally, like vines growing over an ivy wall. Right? No, we don't like that, so we'll slow that down. We do like this, so we'll speed this up. I, I talked to an Arizona state senator, a legislator anyway, many years ago, who said that he wrote a bill, handed it over to his, um, to his aides to clean up the language, and when he saw it, just before he voted on it, because bills are ridiculously long anyway, and read it, he realized that the aide had inverted what the bill was supposed to do. Yep, so there you go. So, so far so good, Henry. I think, I think the president should come in with his guys. And, and I think if, if it turns out that your friend has run um, a business and you want to make him treasury secretary, I'm in favor of that. And and frankly, if it turns out that his nephew was, you know, the the guy who who, who did the bookkeeping, you want to make him, uh, you know, the assistant secretary. Great. Anything's better than what we have now. Nothing. There's nobody less competent than career politicians, and that's why they want to stay career politicians because they know it. Okay. So moving on. So you used to be able to just dump the bureaucracy. Um, and now the government, of course, is so complex that you, it's almost like you couldn't do that, but I refuse to believe that. It's just, that's what got us in the struggle. I can't do that. Okay. So now he says, one possibility is that we try to create a situation where the government bureaucrats are cycled out with the party of their affiliation. So in this situation, you would have the head of the local DMV as a registered Democrat. The Democrats lose an election, state or federal. Now the incoming new head of the DMV office is a registered Republican on an individually signed four-year term limited contract till the next election with the ability to be retained if the affiliated party wins. Henry, you're pushing hard for having two of the best ideas I ever heard in one episode. So as a result, the bureaucrats at every level are cycled back into the real world regularly and a bad government employee doesn't stay long enough to build up these endless pensions and lifelong benefits packages or the career connections to make things go faster or slower either, for that matter. Term limits to 12 years for all federal employees and no going on welfare in between elections either. 
So how does this increase competition? Well, what it is, if this reset in government employees also came with a reset in regulations, so there would be a Republican set and a Democratic set of regulations. Obviously, for some of the regulations, this would be harder than others. However, I think that over time, people would begin to see which party provides less intrusive government and would vote for that. As well, the parties would really have to start competing and differentiating themselves, no more of this uniparty crap. If every time the Republicans took office, there was suddenly half the regulations you had under Democrats and the staff at the DMV was actually helpful, attentive, and efficient, do you think that would not get through to the voters? Now, the other part of this plan would really show the Democrats how unpopular their policies and regulations are with the voting public. If the Democrats had to own every bad decision and policy all the way down to the local level and cannot point to a policy that they inherited from the last guy, what are they going to hide behind? I think this would drag both policy and regulation into the political middle and force the administrative straight state to, to shrink. Let me go to the, there's a lot to unpack there, more than I have time for because I have other questions to answer right now, but I'll be thinking about this a lot. But let's unpack the basic idea here. When you change the majority political party of the legislature of that state, you change the bureaucracy of the state as well. That if Republicans could somehow capture the California legislature, then every single person working for the state of California would eventually be, and eventually I mean shortly, be replaced by a Republican. And then if the Democrats took it back, then they could hire the old guys back if they wanted to, but this would be a way to, to flush things out. That's a really, really good idea. Because so many of our problems are caused by unelected people. And another major problem, which I would go after first, frankly, is not only are, are so many of our problems caused by unelected people, but actually the majority of our problems are caused by people who are elected using powers that they were never given, ever. Never meant to have and, and never given. Executive orders are the worst thing that's happened to this country in my lifetime. Uh, I'd never heard the term before. Well, certainly, I can't remember hearing it before Obama, but I'm sure I must have heard it during the Bush administration, but I have no memory of executive orders. Executive order is dictatorship. If you say, I'm the president, we've decided we're going to do this. Well, what about Congress? Well, tell with Congress. It's an executive order. Executive orders need to immediately disappear. they got to go. And if I was president, the first thing I'd do is sign an executive order, voiding all executive orders, and basically saying there shall be no more executive orders, and if we need to amend the Constitution to state that, then... See, we don't need to amend the Constitution, we just need to listen to it, just have to follow it. But anyway, this, there has to be some way to, to, to dynamite loose the lifetime parasites that have infected the American political system. One of the best things I ever heard about America and American politics was that in every other country in the world, this is prior to Barack Obama now, in every other country in the world, the capital city is the biggest city in that country. London, obviously, Paris, and Berlin, and so on. But in America, Washington wasn't even in the top five or ten, not only in population, it just, you know, New York was where the, the, the money was, Los Angeles was where entertainment was, and, and aerospace and so on, and Houston was where the energy was, and all the rest of it. It was, it was Washington was always kind of, a, kind of a, almost like an appendage, you know, that orbited the important stuff, because we weren't politicizing everything. One way to fix this problem 
Henry, attacking it from a different direction is to, is to, and this is more of a cultural issue, which is really our job, uh, is to make an effort to depoliticize as much of our life as possible. In other words, you could try to change the bureaucracy because the bureaucracy has this control over your life. But if you could eliminate the, if you could eliminate the things that they had control over, it would function essentially the same way. It would help to get rid of them because you'd make them weaker. Uh, used to be if you were a Republican or a Democrat, it's because one of you believed in a 12% tariff and the other one believed in a 4% tariff. That was basically it. It wasn't a question of which bathroom you use. It wasn't a question of any of that stuff. It was just two different flavors of how to do the same thing. But since the progressives took over, and really I'm talking about 120 years ago now, now we're going to tell the American people you can't come home and have a beer. What? Yeah, we're going to pass an amendment. Really? You're going to pass an amendment, prohibition, to take away freedoms from America. Yep, we're progressives and that's what we do. Okay. You can probably cut the connections between your life and government not only more easily, but also more effectively, the closer to the local level you possibly can get. And I am somewhat encouraged, in fact, I'm, I'm considerably encouraged by, by the reaction that we're seeing now with school boards across the country, and especially the reaction of the people on the school boards and the teachers unions to parents suddenly realizing, hey, they've been putting stuff in your kids' heads. Well, we've been telling you this for three generations now, but I'm glad, you know, better late than never. That kind of thing is where I think the actual solution is because that doesn't require massive social shift. It just requires an individual doing something different. If you homeschool your kids or of all the things that this country really needs, and there's so much money in this, but right now the greatest single need in this country, I think, and I'm talking now as a businessman regarding a market, is that there needs to be an alternative to public schools that basically does what public schools are supposed to do, and that is not only educate your kids, but get them out of your parents' hair as well. You can't ask parents to become teachers on time. It's just it's not feasible. So there's got, if I was, if I was really looking for something to, to be the big smash society open kind of thing, I wouldn't go into electric cars or solar power or anything. I'd find a way to educate children independently of letting the government do it, and I would and I would insist upon the socialization aspect of being in person. This is not a Zoom call thing. We're already finding, I'm not talking about homeschooling now because homeschoolers often have social events that, that go with it, but more and more evidence comes out every day that the year and a half that young people have been deprived of their company of each other at this critical point in their lives where they're supposed to be making friendships, we're going to see the result of this as a social pathology for, for generations. Generations. But there needs to be something out there that's uniform, standardized. There needs to be a McDonald's of homeschooling, is what I'm saying. And there also needs to be a Burger King of homeschooling and ideally a Chick-fil-A of homeschooling so that so that you get choice, competition, all of that stuff, which is good, but at the same time, something that's recognized. So you don't have to, so you don't have to go out and find your own chemistry teacher, right? That's what I would be doing right now. I would be putting together educational franchises, private educational franchises. That's, that's actually a damn good idea. That's exactly how to think of it. I would be putting out the McDonald's of homeschooling. Yeah, pay us, come on, 
bring your kids over. Here's our building, and we'll put them out and we'll exercise them and play football and baseball and all the rest of it. And when they go to school, they're going to learn mathematics and science and biology and all the rest of it, history. And they're not going to learn any politics. If you hear a political word, in any, your children are not only allowed to, but we encourage that they record every single session so that if a political opinion is uttered in a biology class, we can discipline that teacher. And if that teacher continues to do it, then we fire that teacher because they're there to get biology, not politics. That's what I would do. I would just open it up. Uh, Bob Neef says classical education, formerly known as education. Exactly, Bob. It's not a mystery to me. I'm not joking when I say that if I had a, uh, if I had a classroom that consisted of, of, of 30 kids under a tree and I had a slate and a piece of chalk, I could educate those kids to, a, to orders, orders of magnitude past what you can do with the newest computer labs and all the rest of the stuff they spend money on. Easy, easily. Education is everything, and, and as we fall behind on education, fewer fewer engineers, all the rest of it. And I'm going to try and figure out a way to keep moving on and getting these questions. But again, Henry, two ideas, just amazing. <coughs> Here we go. Um, we're still in uh, build.com. Uh, hey, look at that captain on the bridge. Welcome back, Bill. Glad to hear you're feeling better. It's from Marusha Dark, who I don't think is with us tonight, but in any event, hello. Um, feel free to skip this if you're already talking about it during the stream and to plead out of anything too personal, but I was wondering if you could share a bit about your experience with the Wuhan flu and whether it's had any impact on your views about the virus itself or our collective response to it. Also, how did Natasha handle it in comparison to you? P.S. Steve Scott and Zoe did a great job holding down the fort while you were away. You'll be relieved to know that I'm not going to answer this question. Uh, I looked at the date on it. It's January 13, 2022. The, the entire last Stratosphere Lounge was about that. Um, so, uh, I imagine you've seen that by now, and so I'm just going to consider this question obsolete. Um, Natasha handled it, um, well, about as well as I did. She didn't have the sore throat of the cough to deal with, which got, which for me was the worst of it. But she was very, very sick. And, um, and we not only took care of each other, we had a couple of friends came over and, and took care of us. It really was a question there for a week or two when it was like, if something had to happen, like we need to get some water, I'm thirsty, I'm thirsty too. Who wants to go? It, for what I remember of it, there was a week or two there where we basically just said, who feels the least awful? Well, I guess I do. Although mostly it was her. She's a champ. Um, Henry Lundley again. Hey, Bill, welcome back. Just wanted to get an update on the new launch date for the assault on the DNC castle animation. Figured being down a couple of weeks would have delayed the whole thing, so I think we're all wondering what you expect the new launch date to be. Also, with your expanded experience with Unreal, do you expect that your projects will progress at a greater pace? Once again, I'm going to declare this one obsolete only because we talked about that at the very beginning before I saw the question. Hopefully that answered your question on that. Uh, Marusha Dark, uh, your video on the psychology of anti-anti-vaxxers reminded me of the fact that I'd heard about the American Revolution, reminded me of this fact I'd heard about the American Revolution, wherein supposedly only one-third of the colonists actually fought for freedom, another third were British loyalists, and the remaining third were ambivalent and content to see whichever, content to side with whoever won. Maybe that's ultimately apocryphal, but given what I know about human psychology and how personality traits such as agreeableness or neuroticism exist on a bell curve, I'd be willing to bet the same distribution maps holds to just about every other asset, facet of society as well. The result being that for any political issue, you have a third of people preferring one side, a third of people preferring the opposing side, and a third who can go either way. 
for existence, pro-vax, anti-vax, and people who just follow whatever the herd around them does. One-third are courageous, one-third neurotic, and one-third somewhere in between, etc. We know that personality has a genetic component to it, how much is debatable, meaning that some people firmly on one side will never leave that side, and each side has a trade-off of good and bad qualities. Those in the middle can either be won over or ignored to shift the balance of power. My question to you is, which do you think is more fruitful from a tactical perspective? Trying to win over the moderate middle in order to swell our ranks or ignoring them and simply, see, and simply focusing on neutralizing those dangerous actors on the other side or perhaps even both? Yet another great question. Uh, this is a no-brainer. We spend so much time arguing with people that are never going to come around to our point of view because they are not capable of our point of view. It's pithier than I expected, from, especially from the Strands for Lounge. They're not capable of it, Marusha. They don't, but you mentioned a lot of this is, is genetic. If you're a person who is, who is, let's just say for the sake of the argument, a hypochondriac, a hypochondriac and a germaphobe, you are not going to be convinced that the, uh, well, you don't need the vaccine, the, put the masks away, it's all, you know, just get it, survive it. You're never going to convince those people. And likewise, if you're a person who's consumed by envy and, and, and who feels entitled that the world has been shafting them for their entire lives, otherwise they'd have the nice car, you're never going to change those people either. You're not going to get them to suddenly realize that the people who have all the nice stuff, as a general rule, worked harder for it. I mentioned um, the shows that we did today with, uh, with Zoe, which haven't been released yet, the two virtue signals. Uh, I, I mentioned on that show that the, the problem is not finding cool things to talk about. The problem is finding virtues. If we called it the vice signal, we'd be in business forever. But because I put a title on the show, I have to think of a new way to kind of package this. I said it was like, imagine we did a right angle called COVID-19, and that was it, you know, so. But so I decided just for the sake of it, just to set up the conversation. We did one show called Rich Man, Poor Man. We did another show called Beggar Man, Thief. And in Rich Man, Poor Man, I said, I've known millionaires. I've known a number of millionaires. I'm friends with a number of millionaires. And I've met a few billionaires, and they're different people. But not only were the million, every millionaire that I know became a millionaire without that being their primary motivation. I don't know a single millionaire whose reason for doing what they did in order to become millionaires was, I want to be rich. I, I don't know a millionaire like that. I don't even know if they exist. Billionaires are different. Uh, that's about accumulation. But the millionaires I know, and I think millionaires are the, best people I ever met and billionaires may be the worst or second worst. The millionaires I know did it because they had a, a burning desire to do something that they wanted to do and as it turned out that provided value that wasn't there before and people paid them money. Um, so I also said the second thing I know about millionaires, the ones that I know personally, are they of the hardest working individuals I've ever seen and I'm not sure I want to work that hard. Uh, turns out I do, and uh, I just am missing some kind of chromosome that, uh, that they have. Uh, and, and let me just get into that for a second. Uh, what, the, reason, the reason that I, that I am uh, not a millionaire myself 
and am unlikely to become one unless I can find a really good manager is because 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 <laughs> my my mind is 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 very very it's not disorganized but it's certainly not organ it's it's fluid i think that's probably the best way to put it i cannot it's not a question of concentration because if i have a specific problem to solve i'll sit there and stare at it for 27 hours till i beat it but my mind is not wired in such a way so that I continue to execute the, the steps that need to be executed on a regular basis. I'm just not built that way. The reason that I'm good at what I do and the reason that I'm bad at what I do is because, because the, the, the pieces are constantly changing position and trying to find new ways to combine. And that means that, that organizational follow-through and, and all the things that, that the people who I know who are millionaires get right, I just, I don't want to say I can't do it. Yeah, that's fair. I can't do it. It's not that I'm not smart enough. It's not that I don't know how. I just can't do it. I don't, I, I just don't have the, I just don't. This is not the first time this has happened. It's, it's, it's not only common, but it's essentially mythological. The story of, you know, an actor who's, who becomes a multi-millionaire and, and his agent steals all his money from him because what makes you a good actor as a general rule doesn't make you a good accountant and that's kind of where that whole thing sits um, so my point is to answer your question we all respond to the to the one-third that is vocally opposed to us because that's the third that's making the noise but you are 100% correct. We should not. We should not only not be fighting those people. We should be actively ignoring them and going entirely at the movable one third. Because I I completely agree with what you're saying and basically been saying the same thing for decades now. One third of the country thinks one thing. One third of the country thinks another, and the middle moves and the, the middle will move in the direction of who's telling the best story not who's presenting the best facts who's telling the best story and we're miserable at that fortunately the factual foundations of, of life on earth support our position because if it were just storytelling there'd be seven of us um, this is the this is why this company is here the ideas that we call conservative today are ideas that work and because they're ideas that work the people that are attracted to them are practical people and practical people are not terribly good at what Evans say it calls uh, rhetorical intelligence therein is our problem and here's where I come into the picture as an individual um, I have a very unusual background best way to put it is I've mentioned it once or twice before when I was in college I did all of the science homework for my artist friends and all of the humanities homework for my science friends I live in both of those worlds I, 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 I'm an instrument rated pilot who's flown experimental airplanes and I, and I know what a good color, color palette is you don't often find that combination and that's where my uniqueness is uh, 
the essay I wrote on Silent America called Tribes, where there was a gray tribe of engineers and a pink tribe of, you know, entertainers. I'm actually both. Uh, and, and that gives me a real advantage because it means that on an intellectual level, I can understand where the conservative argument is coming from. I can understand the engineering of common sense. And on an emotional level, I can, when I'm on my game, which is most of the time, I can turn that practical data into an emotional appeal that makes people go, oh, wow. I saw a number of comments about that in regard to Cerberus. In fact, the leading comment on YouTube when I saw it last was, Bill, you have a un really uncanny ability to take things that we've all been kind of thinking about and put it in a concrete form that we can all now immediately see the relationship that's just been kind of vaguely in our head. That's a valuable skill. And we are doing essentially none of this for the middle. The middle can be, can be convinced. The fact, that, the fact that there's been a, what is it, 12, 14 point shift in Republican Party versus Democratic Party presence uh, preference in the last year wasn't due to me being out there changing people's mind. It's due to the fact that the middle will move. And when they voted for Democrat, they said, oh, Joe Biden's a great guy and he's experienced and he's kind and he's wonderful. A lot of people believed that and they voted for him. They didn't know any better or they had hopes. Well, significant numbers of those people have now looked at reality and realized, nope. So if we could learn to tell better stories, we'd wipe them out because we have the foundations. The reason it's a 50-50 game, more or less, is an indication of how close to the truth we are because when it comes to selling that truth, we're so miserable that if, if the truth weren't on our side, we'd, we'd be gone. So there you go. Yes, go for the middle. You will not change the other people's mind. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of time. I think it was Phil Trick who said this. I hope you're watching Phil. I know you're watching. If you're not watching the live, you're, you're watching there. I think it was Phil. I got all upset about something when I was a kid working in the planetarium, 13, 14 years old. And this is why they get Phil was so valuable to me. And I was all wired up about somebody saying something and blah, blah, blah. blah. It might have been Bill Deshaun who said this. Anyway, one of these three guys that helped raise me said, uh, if you were walking down a country road, Bill, and, um, and you pass a couple of horses, and when you walk past one of those horses farted, would you take that personally? I said, no. Look at it that way. So I try to. Yeah, go for the middle. Don't try to convert their choir. Um, okay, so I'm looking at what we got left on BillWiddle.com. We're going to get through all of these, and we'll get some, at least some on the, on the Facebook thing. Um, Okay, so another one from Arusha Dark that's more or less about um, the stuff that I covered in uh, Cerberus, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip that one. Uh, Martin Archer, uh, who's an eminent fortunate, one of those names. Were you, aware, uh, and were you aware of and know anything about Chuck Yeager's disrespect of Neil Armstrong? There's more to the question, but uh, the short answer is yes. Uh, Neil Armstrong was one of the most well, he's my all-time, my number one life hero. And one of the things that makes me so fond of Neil Armstrong on a personal level is his humility. And 
I've never heard anybody say anything good about Chuck Yeager as a person. He is the he is the prototype steely-eyed missile man, and as a pilot and and as a test pilot especially, he is the legend that he needs to be. But I put uh, I'll get to the rest of the question. I put Chuck Yeager in the exact same category as William Shatner. I've never heard anybody say anything good about those two men on a personal level, and yet. Here's my office with, you know, Captain Kirk's on that wall and that wall and that wall, and there's my flight helmet back there. I'm able to separate those two out. Anyway, to continue his question, I just reread Jaeger, his autobiography, and Armstrong is in two of his anecdotes. In the first, he was training test pilots on certain aircraft, and he went up with Armstrong in a two-seater, and at some point they had to find somewhere to land. He said Armstrong wanted to land on some remote salt flat, but Jaeger said he shouldn't as there had been recent flooding in that area and they'd get stuck in the mud and not be able to take off. Jaeger said Armstrong overriding by landing there anyway, and they did indeed get stuck. But the anecdote that made me question the veracity of that event was when Jaeger alluded to the Dave Scott Neil Armstrong Jim and I 8 mission. He said that Scott rescued them from that incredible one revolution per second spin situation, not Armstrong. Now everyone knows it was Armstrong that rescued them, and Scott is on record everywhere, including YouTube clips, acknowledging that Armstrong saved their lives and also that he himself would probably never have been able to. So this makes me question Jaeger's credibility on many matters, not just these ones. He was a genius pilot, but he was also a giant egoist, egotist. Your thoughts on that? My immediate reaction, I did not hear about Jaeger who cares about, look, they landed on a, on a salt flat, they got stuck, but they didn't get killed, right? Okay, so as far as I'm concerned, you know, that old saw is true. Good landing is any landing you can walk away from, and a great landing is when we get to use the airplane again. Um, so I don't give a damn about the salt flat thing. But if if Jaeger, and I believe you, Martin, if, if Jaeger is saying that it was Dave Scott who saved the Gemini 8 mission, then I can explain that to you very easily. Chuck Yeager is, in fact, an, an ego, an egoist, and he's a narcissist. And, and you have to have that kind of confidence to do the kind of things that they did. But I'm utterly convinced that Chuck Yeager never got over the fact that Neil Armstrong was the first man to walk on the moon. And essentially, you got to understand these as, as it points out in the question these guys worked with each other for years it's not like hey neil armstrong oh these are colleagues these are office workers they know each other very very well and and i suspect that it's that it has rankled chuck yeager that that he wasn't the first guy to walk on the moon and that and that chuck yeager would do anything in his power to lower people's perception of neil armstrong's and thereby raise his people's perception of himself in the process. I hate to speak ill of the living. We said earlier in the show, it's Buzz Aldrin's uh, 92nd birthday today. Happy birthday, Buzz. I know somebody who worked with Buzz very closely for a long time. My friend Fritz Bronner did a board game called Liftoff, uh, which was, by the way, if you can get Liftoff and you're interested in space, I cannot recommend it highly enough. It is an absolutely fantastic, fantastic game where you have uh, two to four players each building their own space program, deciding how they're going to do what they do. It's, it's a really brilliant game. When, when Fritz decided to make that into a computer game, it changed from Liftoff to uh, Buzz Aldrin's uh, race, race Into Space. So basically, he just hired Buzz to be a 
face for the project. Here's your check, and now it's Buzz Aldrin's race into space. Um, I never heard anything particularly negative from Fritz, but he worked with him for quite a lot. But I did hear stories about Buzz where, you know, Buzz would visit some kind of aerospace plant and all of the guys had gotten together and done something for him. And, you know, they were just asking for an autograph and he refused to give it or he wanted to charge him 10 bucks or so. You know, just this kind of, of thing. Um, so just to wrap this one up, Martin, two things that come to mind are not only is it possible, but it's necessary to separate the individual from their achievements. Um, Bart's treasures onto something that's a big part of this, I think. Jaeger never had an engineering degree which precluded him from the astronaut program, giving him an inferiority complex. Yes, Chuck Jaeger was a guy from West Virginia who happened to shoot down five German airplanes on one mission, ace, ace in a day. He's the guy who said, the first time I ever saw a jet aircraft, I shot it down. Chuck Yeager's the guy who got into the Bell X-1 with a broken rib, or, or more than one, had a sawed-off broom handle to close the door, dropped and just went and blew through that demon in the sky. He deserves his reputation. As, and, and, and of all the things about Chuck Yeager, the most amazing things are some of his test pilot things where he's just about to die, and you listen to him, and he sounds like he's ordering a cheeseburger. You know, so let me try this. I'm going to go inside and go. Um, Okay, but the reason that I admire Neil Armstrong as much as I do is he was a great man and he was also a good man, and that's not as common as I would like it to be. He was a great good man, and Chuck Yeager was just a great man. Uh, William Shatner is an iconic actor, and he always will be. Captain Kirk is a mythological figure. He's, he's the Apollo or the, you know, the Zeus of a generation. But he's not a good guy at all. He's, he's really nasty. I've worked with him on two occasions and he's just a, 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 a very shallow, very mean guy. Okay. That's okay. I, I don't have to... I'm not marrying William Shatner. I'm admiring Captain Kirk. Now Dave Big Booty points out that today was also DeForest Kelly's birthday and this is going to take a quick little detour. Because I met DeForest Kelly once, and I'm so happy to be able to talk about this because DeForest Kelly, unlike William Shatner, was a great, good actor. He's a great man and a good actor. Uh, if you've heard the story already, I'll make it brief. When I was, and your mom's birthday, happy birthday to your mom, Dave Bigwood. <coughs> Excuse me. When I was working as a limo driver, uh, all we did was drive executives from San Marino to LAX and back again. I'd make probably three, four trips a day in a Lincoln Town car. So we never handled the Hollywood crowd, and we never handled the stretch limousine stuff. We just didn't. I came back from a long day, and I was really tired. I was sitting in the dispatch room filling out my paperwork, and somebody said, hey, we got a, uh, some other limo company has got a scheduling problem. They called us. Uh, anybody want to go to the airport and pick up a, 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 a TV actor, a TV star or something? And I kind of said, you know, what's his name? And he said, oh, it's some, some guy was on Star Trek, uh, Mr. Forrest or something. And I said, DeForest Kelly? And he said, yeah, that's it, DeForest Kelly. And then there's like a bill shape outline in the dust like Roadrunner. I'm out to the car and I'm on my way down to the airport. So I go to the airport and I pick up DeForest Kelly. And he's wearing a neck thing because he had throat cancer, I think. But he had this really cool kind of a you know cravat on and all that stuff. And as I pick up DeForest Kelly... The guy from the original limousine company comes up to me and says, hey, 
we were able to get here in time. He's a regular client of ours. I'll take it from here, says this other driver. We'll pay you for the trip, obviously. Our company will compensate you for coming down. I said, you know, I don't know if I can do that. I got you know, this and this and this and so on and so forth and so on. And, and, and you know, maybe you should call and so on. And I really, you know, so while he's busy calling, I get to force Kelly's bag off of the carousel and into the car we go because I'm driving to, to Forrest Kelly home. He ended up, he lived in a house that's just a, a stone's throw away from the intersection of the 405 and the 101, um, which is across the street from where my apartment was for many years. So I'm driving to Forrest Kelly home, and, uh, and, I'm, and, and I, I remember saying to him, uh, you can tell when somebody wants to talk and when they don't want to talk, and, and again, there's a third in the middle when you go either way. So I remember looking up to him and saying, you know, Mr. Kelly, I hope you don't mind me just not asking you a question, just, just telling something. I don't know if, if, if this is something that you fully realize, but you are immortal. You, you're, you're immortal. You are part, not of a TV show, but of a, of a national mythology. As long as there's electricity, he's dead, Jim, is going to be spoken. You, you, are, you are a mythological figure. And he said, you know, that's the nicest way anybody ever put it. Um, and I don't guess I really realized the impact. He said, look, honestly, Bill, it was just, a, it, was just uh, it, it was an audition. I was in Westerns. I did a lot of Westerns. And they asked me to audition for this space thing. So I went down to this space thing audition. And I thought no one's ever going to make the show. And they ended up making the show. And I thought maybe we'll go a season. They ended up going three. And then the movies come on and so on. And we obviously touched something. He said it was to me. It was just a an audition, and and I and I never really thought of it as as anything more than just another job. I said, well, you you are Dr. McCoy will be here forever. And we were quiet for the rest of the trip. And uh, we I dropped him off at the house. I got his bag out of there. I got it to the door, and I said, thank you. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure and a real honor you have no idea the effect you've had on me and millions of other people and he said hang on one second so I waited at the door and how do I not have that here how do I not have that here I have it at home I'll bring it in um and went inside and he, he was in there for, for quite a while I remember thinking oh, Get going here. And he came out with, with a picture, a headshot of himself, publicity shot. And it's of him in the red tunic from um, Wrath of Khan with the, the green collar. And with a gold marker, he'd written, Dear Bill, hang in there. You're a friend to Forrest Kelly. And that is one of my all-time uh, prized possessions. And I can't believe it's not in the office. It's at home. Um, uh, and I just got in the car and and <laughs> I, I recovered the will to live, you know. I had a similar experience with Dustin Hoffman, of all people. The very first show we did as, um, the very first show we did as, on Sunday morning shootout, which was the longest gig I had in Hollywood. That was a five-year job, and that is that is career employment. 
for um, uh, John Pershing wants to know, did he tip me? John, you, you leave us. You, 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 you've spoiled my palate. He's kidding. Of course he tipped me. And then he gave me the picture. And the picture had a tip on it. You see how that works? Hang in there. Uh, so, first show we ever did on Sunday morning show, five-year gig, lifetime employment by Hollywood standards, but unfortunately, we didn't know we were going to be there for five years. It was a five-year job that was a, a series of three-month jobs. How are the ratings? I don't know. We're going to be fired probably. Not fired, just, you know, laid off because the show's going to get canceled. In any event, the first of those shows was Dustin Hoffman was the guest on the very first one. I was down there at the taping. I usually didn't go to the tapings back. I didn't go to any of them after the first one or two. But I but I was there for the first one. And he was walking out of the studio and I was right behind him. And it was the same kind of thing. I, I was right behind him and I said, Mr. Hoffman, and he turned around. He said, yes. I said, I'm sorry to bother you. Just something I just would like to tell you. He said, well, by all means, couldn't be nicer. I said, when you... When you accepted your Academy Award speech, however many years ago it was, this would have been in 19, no, 2004, somewhere around in there. And Hoffman had won years and years earlier. I said, when you accepted your award that night and you said, this one is for all of the unknown actors out there, I was watching that show with about 15 other members of... Uh, of the theater department at the University of Florida. And I think every single one of us started to cry. And I can't tell you how much that meant to us, how much that one line meant to us, because you made it sound like if you worked hard enough, you could get there. And, um, and he said, thank you. I, to my utter amazement, find myself on the receiving end of this kind of thing now. And like I said last show, we were having, went out to, to Santa Monica the first day we were well enough to leave the house, decided to get a little bite to eat on the beach. And when I'm signing the check, the 20-year-old Mexican waiter says, oh, I thought it was you, sir. I'm a big fan of your stuff on YouTube. And it's like, my God, you could have knocked me over with a feather. I really needed to hear that on that particular day especially. Okay, here we go. So here's Rodney Rowe's question again, which we answered on the previous one about the live stream and, and stuff. So that's just a cut and paste. So Rodney, hopefully we got to that for you earlier. Um, Troy Stevens, uh, an eminent fortunate. Uh, remote volcanology, remote volcanology during COVID is the title of this question. And for those of you not familiar, I often frequently, in fact, tediously say, Bill, why are you still in California? Well, if you're going to be a volcanologist. You got to live under the volcano. Ha <laughs> ha, what a wit. So I guess I got something to do with that. Uh, Bill, I'm so glad that you and Natasha are back to good health, but at the same time concerned and disturbed by the terrible ordeal that you had to go through and what a near thing your recovery potentially was. A lot of medication that I was expecting to take that I had lined up to take, these Claymore mines I had in position, was unavailable when I needed it. Has the experience given you pause to consider whether remaining in California is good for your health? Uh, I'm going to kind of answer this one as I go through it. For most of the time I was sick, I was determined that the second I could stand up vertically, I would pack my bags and get the hell out of here and go to Florida, or Texas. Tasha much, much, much prefers Florida. So, looks like it would be Florida. Um, 
It troubles me that despite all that you knew regarding effective treatment and helped educate us about since the early Chronosphere Lounge days, you were unable to get treatment and medications that would have helped you because the state values its dogmatic policies over your life. That's in italics, period. What an incredible night this is in terms of the, the questions. Yes, that's precisely what I felt, exactly what I felt, that, that I was very, very sick, and so was my, my uh, beloved wife because of politics. Again, um, I might refer you to uh, Cerberus, which, I, which just opened earlier today, if you haven't had a chance to see it. Um, Enduring mundane hardships to do some world-class volcanology is one thing. This could easily have been a matter of life and death. I grew up in LA, lived there 20 years, and California for 30. I know it's a unique place and has charms despite all the governing stupidity that's hell-bent on wrecking it, but we've entered a time where bad ideas have become not just heartbreakingly destructive, but truly and imminently dangerous. This is so eloquent. Please give this serious thought. Please give this the serious thought it merits. We all care deeply about you. We don't want to lose you. It may be time to fight this battle from another front. P.S. Be happy. Come to Texas. Wow. Thank you very much, Troy. That was lovely and means a lot to me and means a lot to my wife, too, who's watching. Um, I, was, I, was, I was serious. I, I sent a text out to the guys. I said, look, look I'm going to be down for another week, and the second we're done with this, I'm moving this company out of here. And I think Natasha would like that. And I think, I know she loves South Florida and it's clean and it's warm and all the rest of it. When I, I went to Texas for Thanksgiving, I wanna say the year before I met Natasha, so it was either 2015 or 2014. And I spent three days there at a person's house and I came back and did an afterburner called uh, I think it was called something like, I can't believe they let you do that. Because that was every, that's all I said in Texas the time I was there. I can't, they, they let you do that? Yeah, we're going we're gonna to shoot skeet into the river. We're just from your backyard? Yeah. Well, what about the houses around here? Aren't they going to call the police? Aren't helicopters going to arrive the second they hear their first gunshot? It's like you realize how, how I realized how, Just, you know, heavy and, and, and invasive all of this is. It's just outside of Texas. Uh, it's just outside of Dallas, in the country. Not, not far. And then afterwards, we're going to do a bonfire. A bonfire, really? Yeah. I'm thinking, well, be moments before the fire department arrives and $1,000 citations are handed out. Nope. So, so there's a big appeal to that, and there's a big appeal to Texas because Texas, because the economy is booming, and, and the biggest appeal of Texas is I'm already an honorary citizen of Texas, thanks to Ted Cruz, and the fact that Texas is the only state that obviously was its own nation. So uh, let, me, let me put it to you this way. If Texas decides to leave the union, it's a no-brainer because I would go to Texas. I would agree, be more than willing to agree that since I'm from California, since I'm moving from California, I, I, I forfeit my right to vote uh, in elections again if you'll let me live in Texas. Um, so, so there's that. Florida, on the other hand, as I say, my wife just loves it. Uh, and, um, and there's a lot to be said about Florida. I was down there uh, a couple weeks before we got sick. Uh, 
And of course, uh, Bart's treasure is pointing out no state income tax in Texas, and that alone is worth. I mean, it's thirteen percent here in California. That's most corporations, most small businesses live or die on a four or five percent margin. That's you know, it's a huge. That's a huge deal. And you factor in not only not only do I not have to pay state taxes if I were to move to Texas, but the rents would be a third of what I'm paying now. And there's a real strong argument to be made for it. And to be honest with you, it's so strong that it's 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 practically overwhelming. And then today, my wife and I went uh, went up to to see our um, chiropractor, who's given us both our mobility back. We both have injured necks from the past. And we're coming back down the Glendale Freeway, and I and I just looked at the car and the temperature outside is 72 degrees 72 degrees outside with you know 38 percent humidity and and i'm coming down out of mountains and i look off to my left and i can see there's snow on mount baldy now that may not mean much to most people but since most of my life had been spent in florida the highest point in southern florida is seven feet seven feet above sea level I talked before about how my friend Phil had a, a feature on his car that was a manual car and it was a Mazda and, and it just had this brand new thing where if you were on an incline, the car would lock its brakes so you didn't have to roll backwards because if you've ever driven a manual on a steep hill, you know, you need three feet in order to do that. We couldn't find, there was no, there was no hill. We had to go drive for 40 minutes to get to Dadeland Mall so we could do it on a ramp in the parking lot. So every time I drive Laurel Canyon, I'm ripped apart by these conflicting emotions. One of them is this road is in such miserable condition that I, it, it really feels like a mountain trail. And at the same time, driving this canyon is the most fun I've had all day. And, and I don't know what I'm going to do. That's the honest answer. I just don't know. I know if we move, we'll take Shelly with us because she's had enough of this out here. And this studio means so much to me, and it's a good time to thank the members for making this possible. Every time I come into this room, and I've come into this room every day since 2014, every single time I open the door, and when I close it too, I just say, I can't believe it. I can't believe that I work here. And I didn't want to give up the studio, but now I'm realizing maybe it's time for a new studio. Um, you know? Maybe it's maybe it's time for a new studio uh, somewhere else. So I suspect the answer. I don't know the answer. I suspect the answer is that eventually I will move and I'll be heartbroken by it like a number of other people. And then what probably will happen is that I will get to wherever we go. And it's virtually certain to be either Florida or Texas. When I arrive there, I will undoubtedly, well, here's the thing about Florida anyway. Everybody I know who's moved out of Los Angeles, when I ask them how do they feel about it, every single person says, I can't believe I didn't do it 20 years earlier. Can't believe it. I am so much happier here. I know people who moved to Nashville and so on. Every single, every single one of them was, I, I just wish I'd done it 20 years earlier. And so that would be very encouraging if I were going someplace new. But going to Florida brings a lot of baggage with it for me. Um, I was not a happy camper when I was in Florida. And the humidity and the bugs and all of that were a, 
just a perpetual grind on me. So moving to Florida on a like on a gut level feels like going backwards. Now, my sister, my wife have said, you know, you're a different guy now. The experience will be different. And Natasha points out to me accurately enough that I go from my air-conditioned house to my air-conditioned car to my air-conditioned studio, so what difference does it make? The difference is, and this is the real reason why I'm in California, to be honest with you, is that if I move to Florida, then the, the hair goes. Just, it's gone. It's not that it falls out. It just stops looking fantastic. Uh, <laughs> I've been, I was a curly-headed guy my entire life. Always wanted to have straight hair. Always wanted to have hair that looked like this. I finally come to a place where it's dry enough to do it. And then I go back to Florida, and after 15 minutes of walking around Florida, my hair turns into a pom-pom again, like it did when I went down to Guantanamo Bay. Now, if I could perhaps, maybe I could take one of those boy in the bubble kind of things. Maybe I could could have like a inflatable clear plastic bubble that would be humidity controlled, might be able to do that. Uh, Fire Waco wants to know who am I trying to impress these days, Bill, since I'm married, cares about what your hair looks like. And the answer of course is myself. Vanity is uh, my middle name here. Um, Troy Stevens, great thing for Troy to say. This is a it's a great saying, and I only heard it recently. No man ever crosses the same river twice, for he is not the same man and is not the same river. Excellent advice. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, Bag of Sprite says, you almost died and you're worried about your hair? Precisely. Now you understand why I'm not a millionaire. That's precisely correct. You got it exactly right. That's how it works. Thou art stricken with vanity. Yes, I am. Um, but the difference between vanity and arrogance is arrogance doesn't recognize its own vanity. You know, I, I think if you can recognize your own vanity, then on some level, it's less crapulent. David Booty says, move back to America, Bill. I suspect that's probably what will happen. But yes, your point is, is exactly right, Troy. I mean, California nearly, nearly killed me. There was some real, real risk of me, you know, being terminated by California policies. I'll tell you a little thing that, that I think almost certainly would do it. Gavin Newsom's talking about doubling the California tax rate from 13% to 26%. If he does that, then there's not going to be anybody left in California. To be perfectly honest with you, one of the toughest things about moving out of California now is figuring out how to do it. It's not possible. You can't get moving companies. You can't get U-Hauls. You can't get anything. They're all going one way. They're, they cost you $3,000 to move from Los Angeles to, to Dallas, and then U-Haul will pay you to drive from Dallas back to Los Angeles. Um, so anyway, uh, that's that. Um, King of Cleans, who I've never seen comment before, says, you got to look good for your wife. You can never stop dating her, especially a catch like you have, Bill. Exactly right. And when I said I only do it for me, what I really meant, of course, was I do it uh, to impress Natasha. And that vanity has nothing to do with it whatsoever. It's absolutely, completely uh, dealing with, you know, much higher plane than that. All right. Um, Eduardo Henrique. Greetings, Bill Wazard13 here, still working on moving to Red US. My question this week is your take on what happened to Mike Lindell, CEO of Good Pillow. If you don't know, his banks closed his accounts. Also, a reminder, TSL of December 16 last year was never placed on YouTube. Scott Ott had told me that when I was sick, but I had forgotten it. TSL of December 16th. I, I uploaded it. I probably uploaded the wrong one. 
I will check that when I'm finished tonight, and um, and I'll uh, if it turned out it just didn't get uploaded, I'll upload it uh, tonight. Thank you for that. Best regards. Uh, you repeated two episodes by accident, so I'll go fix that. It's. I thought maybe Scott might have fixed it, but I realized no. I'm this all the all the TSL stuff lives here. Um, so. So furball. So, uh, so I'm coming. I'm. Hang on. Did I skip one? Furball. I'm sorry. I will get to you. I. You're right. I did skip you. It's because it was so short. I didn't even see it. Um, okay. So uh, as far as Mike Lindell goes, what they've done to. I, I think Mike Lindell has an enormous lawsuit that he has against these banks that can't to, to to cancel his accounts because he's a conservative and a Trump supporter is got to be illegal. He's got the same kind of discrimination case that anybody who canceled them because you were black. We don't like black people at our bank here. We're canceling your your thing. Um, Lindell is a, is, a, is a really great guy. I don't know much about him personally, and he may be a little bit wacky, but on the other hand, he may not be. But the fact of the matter is, like, um, oh, I've almost got his name. Oh, come on. Um, All right, I have to ask the hive mind. Like the guy who started Chick-fil-A. Gosh, what is it? I'll be here in three seconds. He puts his money where his mouth is. He, 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 he'd rather be true to his beliefs than make money. Uh, God, that guy's name is right here. Uh, Truman something? Cathay. Um, yeah. Um, okay. So, so like the Chick-fil-A founder, Chick-fil-A was originally just in malls. It was, a, it was in, in the food court in malls. And they were closed on Sundays, which means they're not losing one-seventh of their income. They're losing a lot more than that. Um, but he, he was a devout Christian. He said, we don't work on the Sabbath, so we're not going to open. And that, that is integrity. And, and without question, um, Mike Lindell has that. Mike Lindell has paid a big price for believing in his principles and being a patriot. And that's why you should go out and buy a MyPillow. And a lot of people are doing that. Here's the thing that Mike Lindell didn't do. Mike Lindell didn't apologize and he didn't backtrack. I've said this so many times, but it just can't be said often enough. If I, if I make a mistake, I'll correct myself. If I make a mistake or hurt somebody's feelings because I made a mistake, I will correct myself and I will apologize. But if I'm right, I will never apologize. And I've been pressured to apologize at least once before by a previous employer. And I just said, no, I'm not going to do it. And in this environment that's so heavily politicized, if you say something that pisses off half the country and then you apologize, you've just pissed off the other half of the country and the first half of the country still hates you. Never ever back up to the to the woke mob or never back up to anything if you if you're convinced you're right i have this ongoing kind of you know weird sort of flash fantasy where i'm on some kind of like incredibly widely watched tv show and i'm in front of you know 80 million people debating some some woke social justice warrior and they're talking about this and that and i just basically say you know what go after yourself that's my, that's my reply. I'm pretty much done. Who do you think you are? And then the audience just rises in adulation. And, you know, 
Well, country is saved because finally somebody at the end of the Emperor's Parade says he's not wearing any clothes. I don't care. You know, I don't care what you think. I don't care what you, you just just go, just go take a take a long walk off a short pier. Um, and sometimes it's just that easy. Okay, um, I'm so sorry about that. For ball 321, um, uh, from a comment on the web, if you've ever wondered what you'd have done in Germany, in 1930s Germany, you're doing it right now. Any comments on that? That is one of the great comments in the history of the internet. That is just absolutely, precisely correct. If you've ever wondered what you would have done in 1930s Germany, you're doing it right now. That is a profoundly good comment. And by the way, um, I'm going to be in Ramona. I, I've done Ramona. I want to say I've done Ramona nine out of the last 10 years. My favorite event by far. They go, we go to the Ramona main stage, and it's just a bunch of great people, and it's a great venue, and I'm just so comfortable there. So doing Ramona in in end of January, and I'm going to take the animation down there and run it for them. That'll be the first audience to see it as an audience. Um, the, the business about, about the, if you wondered what you would have done in 1930s Germany, is, is, is really accurate. Um, Sippy Tome says, be the guy that didn't salute. There's a famous picture of an entire, like, it's a stadium, grandstand. It's, it looks like bleachers, rows of bleachers. And everybody's out there doing the Hitler salute, and one guy's not. And I think they... I think the Gestapo, the Gestapo took that guy uh, away. Uh, but better to be taken away and, you know, be on the side of the angels than to be taken away and shot in the back of the head, which is what happens even if you do do the Hitler salute. Um, so here we all are, standing up to what uh, the news media is telling us. Uh, here we all are, people watching the show now, uh, been called racist when we're not racist. We've been called, you know, anti-science when we're not anti-science. We've been slandered and we've been abused and we're, and we're still here. We're not, we're not going along to get along. And, um, and that's something we should all be actually proud of. Um, Cody MacArthur Pat says he died from an Allied bombing raid three years after that. I think that that sounds right, actually. Um, so, so, yeah, California is California is the land of people. Well, Los Angeles, anyway. The definition of Los Angeles in in the first years of the third decade of the twenty first century is the site of somebody wearing a mask in their car with the windows rolled up driving by themselves. That's, that's California. And that person, we know what that person would have been doing in Nazi Germany. They would have been right at the front of the line with their hands in the air, screaming Heil Hitler at the top of their lungs. Whether they liked Hitler or not, that's what they would be doing. Because that's what they were expected to do. That's what society was pushing them to do, and so that's what they would do. Kind of comes back to what Marusha said earlier about the division into threes. There are people who, who are true believers. There are people who are truly opposed to something, and then there are the middle. 
and the middle will go. And when it comes time to group psychology, the middle is not a third. The middle's when it comes to group psychology, the middle's at least eighty percent and maybe higher. In other words, social proof is everything. We've talked about this a lot in the past. I haven't talked about it too recently, but I remember somebody saying, if you are walking, if you're in Central Park, New York, or you're walking through this, just walking down the streets of New York, and you have a heart attack, and you say, help, then everything's going to depend on what the first person does. If the first person that comes up to you walks over you, then everybody else will simply walk around you as well. That's why this guy recommended, if you're having a heart attack in New York, he said, you, you in the, in the, in the brown jacket, call 911. Because otherwise, if that first person doesn't do anything, then people won't do anything either, because that's the social proof. Um, so, in 1930s Germany, you had an excuse. Let me think about it. That's not how I want to put it. Yeah, I guess that's fair enough. In 1930s Germany, you had an excuse for supporting Adolf Hitler, as long as you hadn't read his book. If you'd read his book, then you have no excuse. But if, if you're just a guy on the street and this guy comes to power and he's been known as kind of an extremist and stuff, but it's 1930s Germany and all of a sudden the you know, unemployment numbers are down, we're building autobahns and, and we hosted the Olympics and so on. Here's a guy who's bringing his country back from ruin. It's like Donald Trump trying to save the country or Ronald Reagan or something. It is absolutely true that m many Germans, mo probably most Germans, were astonished when they heard about the death camps and deeply shocked and remained deeply shocked, which is why Germany confronted their past in a way that Japan never did. But at the same time, you can say, well, they didn't know about the death camps, but they did know that the Myers, who lived two doors down, are no longer there and now we're moving into a better apartment. That they knew. And so you don't get to walk away from that. But look, to really get to your question, for all, there are, you know, there are people who comply and then there are people who aren't. I did a, a, did a thing on that called anticipatory compliance. This is one of these psychological little nuances that are so interesting and so telling. But, they, but this, I read a book called The Extermination of the European Jews. I think that was the title. And, and in it, the author, who is Jewish, survived the Holocaust, obviously, said that when they started instituting some of these most horrible policies, uh, like now you're going to have to wear an armband with a yellow star on it. What this Jewish writer writing about the, the, the destruction of Jews in Germany said was that most Jews may have found the idea repugnant, but most of them were the first ones in line to get the star. It was what he called um, anticipatory compliance. In other words, by that point, by the point where they were able to legally force Jews to wear uh, yellow stars on their armbands, the Jews had been so terrified and so dehumanized for so long that they wanted to show that they were on the team, right? They were on the team. Um, kind of like, you know, okay, yeah, well, you know, we're, we're good Germans. If you, if you say that we have to do this humiliating, degrading thing, then by golly, we'll be the first in line to let you know because please don't kill us. Uh, and that doesn't work. Uh, 
it never works. It just never works. And this is the thing that, that is so alarming to me and one of the things I think the most about. What point is the trigger? At what point will people in this country just stop taking this stuff? And I don't know the answer to that question, but what I do know is that, that the people who are doing what they're doing today, and once again, I'd refer you to Cerberus, which I think is a pretty good episode, actually. What they're doing today, they have an enormous advantage over Stalin and Hitler and Mao. And it's not the control of the information because Goebbels pretty much controlled the information in Nazi Germany. What the people who are, who are pushing this tyranny today have that is invaluable tool of tyranny is they have a feedback sensor. And what I mean by that is in Soviet Russia or Nazi Germany, you could lie about, oh, I'm a total supporter of Hitler. But when every single mouse click that you make is recorded, we tend to think, because it's not because we're vain as I am or anybody else, we tend to think they're recording my mouse clicks, those bastards are going to come after me with this one day. They don't care about you. They don't care about me. They don't care, they don't speak, they don't care about Ben Shapiro. They don't care about the about mouse clicks. They don't care they do care very deeply about is what are people saying to each other on comments in, in things like YouTube streams and in emails. So what today's tyrants have is they have a perpetually adjusted, extraordinarily accurate view of just how angry the electorate or the citizenship is. Citizen, uh, not ship, the citizen the citizens, right? They are able to, to look, they're able to have artificial intelligence. This is common knowledge. Artificial intelligence is looking not only at, at our mouse clicks, they're looking at our, at our emails and so on. And so in a very, citizenry, thank you, in a very, very, very crude example, if they were to suddenly realize that the word rebellion or, you know, revolution were coming up in large numbers of emails and they saw a dramatic shift in something or other, then they'd be able to say, okay, we're going to have to slow this down a little bit. We're pushing them a little bit too hard. They're starting to get to the boiling point. That's really what it is. It's like a, the, the tech giants today are like a thermometer that are monitoring the temperature of the electorate and the citizens of this country and citizens of the world. It's not just America. It's all around the world. The elites are able to monitor with a high degree of precision how irate their uh, subjects are and, and adjust their tyranny accordingly so that it always stays below the boil. That's the one thing they're afraid of, is, is it, if it boils, then they're done because they're a bunch of weaklings. They, these people don't have guns. The Nazis had guns. The, the, the KGB had guns. These guys have got nothing. If things get to a boil, they're finished. And so they are constantly watching how we react to things and making sure that they, they move slowly enough to keep things just under the boil. I had a thought the other day, I might have mentioned it before, but I really do believe it. I'm not sure that COVID-19 would have happened if people had reacted differently to the murder of Jeffrey Epstein. Now you can say those two things have absolutely nothing to do with each other, and on some level you'd be correct. But... I think that when 
I think that I think that the murder of Jeffrey Epstein in his prison cell was a real, genuine, genuine green light for these people, because I think when the when they took that risk, because that's what it was, you know. Oh yeah, the video camera went out for twelve minutes. Really? Yeah, he's under constant video surveillance. Yep. And then the camera just burned out for some reason. Yep. And during the twelve minutes it was burned out, he hung himself, hanged himself in the cell. Yep. And can I see the broken camera? Oh, it's working again. When you get to that point where you are lying to that degree, when you're Michael Jackson saying, I've never had surgery done on my face, when you are lying to people to that degree and nothing happens, then they know exactly how much we love our comfort and our complacency. And... And that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. When when it wasn't, when people were not in the streets demanding Hillary Clinton go to jail for this, demanding an explanation for this, they said, okay, so we've murdered a guy who's connected to the presidential candidate of one of the two political parties of the United States. We know for a certain fact that, that he's connected to her. We know he's murdered in his cell. We know he was murdered. They did it in front of our eyes, in front of our eyes, and we took it. And furthermore, they told us 15 days to flatten the curve, and it's been, what, 675 days now? The shenanigans that happened on November 4th happened, what, nine months? The 2000... And 20 election, the, the 2020 election happened nine months after the pandemic. And that meant that they had nine months of telling us what to do and us doing it before they pulled off this uh, sneak attack. They already knew that we weren't going to do anything because we hadn't done anything when they told us two weeks to flatten the curve and then it turned into nine months. By the time we get to November of 2020, they said, let's go for it. If we don't, then we're ruined. So let's do it. We're just going to steal it in front of the whole world. Yep. That's what we're going to do. And they said to themselves, and, and they said to themselves, what will happen is a lot of these conservatives and patriots are going to get very, very angry. They're going to get very, very vocal, and they're going to yell and scream and so on. And that's all that's going to happen. So who cares? I, I, I often wondered, how can they think we're that stupid that we don't see what happened with Epstein and, or, or, or with the pandemic or with, the, with the, the election? And then I just suddenly realized, it's just naive on my part. Of course, of course they don't think we're that stupid. They know that we know. They also know that we won't do anything about it. Not anything that matters. So that's going to be the hard part. The hard part is going to be finding, the hard part is going to be reaching a boiling point without them, if they can monitor the temperature of the, of the people of the world to that high degree of precision and adjust the heat accordingly, then how do you get to a boiling point?
You see what I'm saying? If, if it turned out, for example, if they kept doing whatever they're doing now and, and more and more people are going to vote uh, Republican and, and it's, going to, it's going to outstrip the, the margin of, of cheating, because that is, you can't cheat your way out of, out of all of it. I'm convinced you can cheat yourself into an, into an electoral victory, you know, 80 million votes or whatever. Okay, sure. But there is a margin beyond which you cannot cheat your way out of. And I think some of the things we're seeing now, like all of a sudden, oh, you know, maybe these masks aren't such a good idea. Maybe we should be doing that. And maybe this, all of this walking stuff back that they're doing now is happening because Republicans, is it what, 12 point switch, and Republicans have never been this heavily favored over Democrats in the history of polling. So they're turning the temperature down and they're hoping that we're going to just cool down. We'll see, you know, we'll see. Um, uh, so that's the, that's the challenge. And the only thing we really have going for us is these people are actually remarkably, they're not stupid. They're just kind of dumb. You know, that's the one thing we have going for us. They think they understand us, but they don't. They don't. It's not just a question of don't understand progress, uh, uh, patriots or, or conservatives. They don't understand people. The people who are doing all the tech manipulation are all on the Asperger spectrum. Um, so even though they have the tools to do things like constantly monitor the temperature of those uh, un unwashed groups out there, they still can't connect to us because they don't have human emotions in the way that we think of them. I'm not trying to dehumanize them. I'm just telling you, this is a, this is a well-known, extremely obvious and, and, and well-established fact that a certain type of autism leads people to be very, very good at things like technology and computer uh, numbers and stuff like that and have very little human connection to people. They just, it's just not there. You look at that reptile Zuckerberg and you are looking at a prime example of a guy with uh, very smart guy, ruthless guy, and a guy who has no human emotions as we understand them. If you haven't seen, um, if you haven't seen uh, the Social Network, which is now what a decade old, the story of, of Facebook, you realize that Zuckerberg screwed every single person that he came into contact with, including the only friend he had, totally raped them. Um, he's not. He. Uh, again, I'm not trying to dehumanize the guy, and I'm not trying to psychologically, uh, you know, indict my political opponents. But I do think that if you were to put Zuckerberg through any kind of a rigorous personality test, you would find him to be a sociopath. I don't think there's any question about that at all. None. Psychopath as well. Person who has absolutely no understanding that that people are people and, and, and not props that get moved around. But when you look at him, when you look at him during the, the hearings, something wrong with that boy.
GK Masterson. Hi, Bill. Glad to see you're better. My question is, have you been following the issues with Activision Blizzard since July? And if so, what do you think of the entire mess up to and including their recent being sold to Microsoft? If not, then you can, tell, can you tell us what happened with Declaration Entertainment and the whole members vote on scripts to be shot idea? I thought it was pretty cool. GK. P.S. I'm still a woman. I don't know if it's GK Masterson just reminding me of GK Chesterson. I suspect that's the case in any, in any event. Uh, political animal tells me there's more questions, which means I'm going to have to refresh the page, which means I'm not going to get to Facebook, which means I'm going to give serious thought to taking the show to twice a week. I'm happy to do it twice a week. It's just, again, set up the YouTube thing and the we'll do a member show, and then we'll do a Facebook questions live chat show because I can't keep not getting to all of these questions. I'm moving through them faster, but it gets to a point when if I'm, all I'm doing is answering questions, and it's not this show anymore. Um, so that is something I'm considering right now. Uh, for the first time ever, since I've been doing the stress for lunch, I'm starting to think about maybe I need to do this twice a week. Um, anyway, uh, to be honest with you, uh, GK, I do not know anything about Activision and Blizzard at all. Uh, so... Um, I just missed that story probably because I was sick. So I'll answer the second one. Uh, what happened to Declaration Entertainment and the whole members vote on which scripts to be shot idea? I thought it was pretty cool. Declaration Entertainment um, consisted of me and Jeremy Bourne. And somewhere in 2014, I want to say, Declaration Entertainment split into two different companies. One of them was BillWhittle.com. And the other was the Daily Wire. Uh, we, we talked about this earlier uh, in terms of business acumen. Uh, Jeremy went out and got, this is all widely known, went out and got a number of millions of dollars from Texas investors. And Jeremy has the best business brain of anybody I've ever met. Uh, I <laughs> told this story before, but I just love it so much. First time I met Jeremy Boren, was at a might have been at a meeting of conservatives in Hollywood if such an organization had even existed, which of course is kind of speculation. But I was sitting in that room and I'm pretty sure I was running that meeting. In fact, I'm sure I was running that meeting. And I was sitting next to Andrew Breitbart. And in those meetings, we would go around the room and talk about ourselves as much time as you want or as little time as you want. And we got around to Jeremy, who was a little bit past halfway, and he started talking. And three minutes into him talking, I leaned over to Andrew Breitbart. I said, Andrew, that guy is the third guy. He's the, he's the third smartest guy in this room. <laughs> I just love that. I was, so, I was so pleased with that line. Sometimes I make myself just, I just wallow in my own crappiness. He wasn't the third smartest guy in the room. He may have been the second smartest guy in the room, and in fact, he might have been the smartest guy in the room. In any event, um, Jeremy and I got together. I left PJTV, and we took the membership model that, that was really just kind of starting then, paying membership for videos. That's kind of weird, but that's what PJ was, TV was doing, but they weren't doing it real well. It was just basically you know, bleeding money out of the billionaire that was behind it. So we both wanted to make movies, and we kind of together hacked out this idea of Declaration Entertainment where we would have members, 
And then if we had enough members, we'd be able to make movies and then we would involve them and they'd be citizen producers. That was the, the term that we used. <coughs> now, it's not that Decoration Entertainment failed. It's just that in order to succeed as a business, I wasn't going to make that thing succeed as a business. Declaration Entertainment was basically my fans coming over from PJTV to Declaration Entertainment. And Jeremy was running the business. And, um, and it became clear that, that in order to grow that thing, it wasn't going to be a two-person job. It was going to be a one-person job. And, and I... I don't know if it was just pride or whatever, but I just, I just gotten finished working for people and I was thinking, okay, great to be working on my own. So we started that, I want to say in 2009 and somewhere around 2013 or 14, Declaration Entertainment rented an office space just down the street here. We had a relatively large room for Jeremy's office and I had an edit bay and that's where we did the first Stratosphere Lounge shows from before I got the studio. And then when we went our separate ways, I took the membership with me. Jeremy had gotten the investment from Texas. And then I saw what, what a real business mind and a real smart guy could do. Within a short period of time, they had taken the three adjoining spaces. And then in a, again, a short period of time, they had taken over the entire floor. A year later, they'd taken over two floors of the building, and a year or so after that, they simply moved to what was their their main location here in Los Angeles. And the next thing you know, they've got four floors of this massive building. They have their own studios. They've got remote control TVs. They got all of this stuff. Um, and that was where I did uh, Apollo Eleven and uh, and the Cold War. And America's Forgotten Heroes. Um, we shot the last episode of America's Forgotten Heroes, I think two days before the 2020 election, and they had already decided to move to Nashville, and they moved within a week after that. Um, so um, there's, there's an element to this too. Uh, Jeremy and Ben Shapiro started working together on the thing that was run by um, by um, David Horowitz, uh, and they started Truth Revolt, which was Daily Wire. And then things happened there that I'm not going to get into, but basically they stopped backing Truth Revolt, and so Jeremy and Ben went out and found some investors, and they just basically reproduced Truth Revolt. They'd taken Truth Revolt to the stratosphere, you know, they're getting, they were getting, they were getting links from Drudge back when Drudge was a conservative website. They're getting that almost every day. Um, so, so Jeremy and Ben are starting to work together, and they're and they're really starting to go with their business. And I'm just kind of wandering off on my own doing this stuff. And um, and I've told this to Jeremy's face several times. Uh, in fact, I tell I tell him this pretty much every time. What you have done here with Daily Wire is the most astonishingly disciplined success that I've ever seen in my life. 
they are a phenomenal company, phenomenally well run. And, and when they started this, my understanding, I was not a privy to any of the stuff that happened with their investors or anything that happened with Ben. But, but, but basically what they did when they went to these Texas people is they basically said, we're going to lose money for four years or three. Whatever. Here's, here's, here's our plan. We're going to lose money for three years. We're going to lose a significant amount of money. And then on year three or four, we should start to break even. And then it will increase like that. And then the next thing you know, they are a, they're not just a media powerhouse, they're a financial powerhouse. They have genuine power. And it's all through the real hard work of Jeremy Boring and, and the talent of Ben Shapiro and uh, vision of a, of a number of Texas uh, investors and precisely the kind of thing that I am not good at doing, and that is putting together a business plan and sticking to it. I don't have the brain for it, and I don't have the inf and I don't have the inclination for it. On the other hand, on the other hand, I can not only break down this political stuff; I can tell a story, and. And we didn't have any real evidence of me being able to tell a story until we did the Apollo 11 series, which became the number two uh, number two in the world, and then America, and then Cold War. What we saw also became America number two podcast in the world. Might have been number one for a day or something, and then America's Forgotten Heroes hung around number. It got to number two. Hung. It was in the top five, top ten the whole time. So. I'm not saying this to solve my ego. I'm just saying this is this is the division of labor. Jeremy and Ben turned Daily Wire into a juggernaut through hard work and talent and real hard work and persistence, confidence, all of those things I admire. Uh, I didn't do that here at BillWiddle.com, but nobody over there can do what I do when I'm on my game. There's not a person over there who could have written uh, any of those three shows I mentioned. And this is why business is, is grand. They didn't have to, they hired me to do it. When people say, well, why is, why is uh, uh, Apollo 11 not visible on YouTube? Well, it's not visible because Daily Wire took it down. And why did Daily Wire take it down? Well, they took it down because they wanted to put it behind their paywall because Daily Wire is a well-run business. And when you are running a business well, you understand these things, right? I wasn't happy about it, but I didn't have any say in it. And I just can't say this clearly enough. I feel no resentment about it whatsoever, none. They paid me to write and produce, to write and to, and to deliver that show. And I agreed to it and I agreed to the rate and, and, I delivered the show and they delivered the check. It's their property. I knew it from the beginning. And I also knew that they can do whatever they want with their property. And if they think it's good for their company to put it behind the paywall and take it off of YouTube, then that's what they paid for. And if they hadn't been such a well-run company, they wouldn't have had the money to pay me to write the thing and it never would have been done. So um, that's, that's basically it. Uh, so, I'm just looking here. 
Oh my gosh. Uh, CP Tome says the best TSO moment ever for me was sitting in a Burt Rutan congregation at Air Venture. That's in Oshkosh. Listening to Burt say, quote, and here's something that my friend Bill Whittle made about Apollo, unquote. And then he played about 10 minutes of it. I was in TSO with my phone right then. That is also one of the high points of my life. Really. With the exception of, of meeting my wife, I, it, it may be the, the, it may be the most rewarding thing that ever happened to me because actually what happened um, CP was that he didn't play it he read it and I got to see Burt Rutan on camera in front of a bunch of pilots flying experimental airplanes reading my script for Apollo 11 what we saw and the section he read was the was the thing that I was actually most proud of is certainly, if it wasn't my favorite moment in all four episodes, it was certainly one of the top three. And that was the picture of Neil Armstrong taken after they had done the moonwalk, which I will find for you. Because it's an amazing picture. Um, You've probably seen the picture, but like as we said earlier in the show, this is my lifelong hero. So where is it? There it is. You have a higher res version. Yeah, there we go. So I took this this picture and I used it in um, I used it in uh, the Apollo Eleven What We Saw series, and then Bert took this picture at Oshkosh in the big theater there and he put this up and then he read my script and Bert Rutan was crying and that was the high point of my life and I can't really repeat it but basically this is what I said I don't I think this picture was taken right after they landed I don't I think it was before the actual walk and I said if you look at this picture there's so much there on one hand, if you look at his eyes and, and, and think about the stress that he was under, even if the landing had gone perfectly and it didn't go perfectly, it was, a, it was a very dicey thing. When they shut off the engine, they had 16 seconds of fuel left and they'd had a standing order to abort if they got below 60, six zero seconds. So they just landed on the moon, taking off their helmets, I think, and, and Buzz took this picture of Neil and I said, the first thing I see when I see this picture is that his eyes are watering. He's almost crying, and he's, and he's almost crying because he has just done the most difficult thing in human history with the entire planet on his shoulders, and he didn't screw the pooch. He didn't screw the pooch. So that's there. But I said there's something else there, too, and that is if you look at this picture, there is in this man the expression of a five-year-old boy who comes out of his bedroom on Christmas morning and sees the bicycle he always wanted right there under the tree. There's that sense of, oh my God, there it is. He looks like a kid on Christmas morning who just got the bike he wanted real badly. And, and this picture to me is the entire Apollo program. All of it. 
in this one picture because you've got you can see the strain you can you can see the stress and and they've just shut the engine down and he's not shaving and he undoubtedly smells bad and he's you know all, all of this stuff but he did it he did it and and he knows he did it and and he's at the point now where he where he, i think emotionally he's able to release this thing that he's been carrying around for at least two or three years since it was announced he was going to be Apollo 11 and probably longer, but it's, it's, it's finally off his shoulders. The final thing I'll say about this picture is what strikes me about this image of Neil Armstrong is it's, I, I've had this feeling and I'll try and explain it to you in a minute. But what strikes me about Neil Armstrong is in this picture, he realizes it doesn't matter if I die now. It, if I die now, it's okay. Uh, if we don't get off the moon, it's okay. Because we did what we said we were going to do. And, and that's what that expression is telling me. Now, when I say something like that, and I tell you I can connect to that, I can. I've told the story a few times before. I've had it happen to me many times before. The first time it happened to me, I had just gotten my glider license, my glider's pilot's license, and I was probably on my third or fourth solo flight. I was in a little Grove 102, which is a one-seater. Um, and and I was flying over Mojave. It was a long drive. It took me an hour and a half to drive up to uh, uh, Yano uh, at, at Crystal Soaring. Uh, that's where I learned how to fly. Same sky as Chuck Yeager breaking the sound barrier. And on this day, it was a, the strangest day I've ever seen in terms of meteorological conditions. It was wintertime, and there was a wind coming from the north. And I was on the northern side of the of those mountains, Mount Baldy and all the rest of them that separate Los Angeles from Mojave Desert. So I was on the Mojave Desert side of this. And I was practicing uh, ridge soaring. Now, if you're in a glider, you're coming down. You're coming down all the time because you got no engine. The trick to flying a sailplane is, can you find air that's going up faster than you're going down through it so that you're going down through air that's rising faster than you're going down, so you actually you go up. You can do that with a thermal, which is a bubble of hot air that gets heated on the ground and just rises like a hot air balloon. And you just have to sense that, or you can do it through ridge lift. If, that, if the wind is coming across the desert and hits the mountains, the wind has to go somewhere, and the wind has to go up. And there is a gradient there, and you have to be pretty close to the mountain in order to be part of the air that's rising fast enough to, to keep you going up. And it was a combination of meteorology that I'd never seen before out there. There was snow on the mountains, so there was, there was moisture in the air. Something just flew through the flame. frame. Did you see that little feather angel or something? And I'm, I'm riding this ridge lift. A guy named Andy Hollebeck, who is a flight instructor who I like very much, was some small distance in front of me in a two-seater in a 103. And I'm in this uh, Grobe 102. It's a bathtub with wings. And I got close enough to the mountain to start getting ridge lift. And I'm going up. And I look off to my left. And this air that was rising was cooling as it got higher. It, it cools. But there was enough moisture in it so that it would cool and it formed a vapor, which meant that off my left wing was a, a waterfall of a vapor that was going up. It was it was like a, it was like a, an, an inverted waterfall 
and I look off my left wing, and there, there's this thin line of clouds that are just going up. And I could dip my wing in it. I could actually just dip my wing in it. And I kept riding that ridge, and you're close enough so that you can see squirrel tracks. And if you're trained well, and you keep your speed up, you can get pretty close there because what's going to happen? You have an engine failure. If you keep your speed up, you can get pretty close. And I was pretty close to that ridge. And remember, I just started flying. And then finally, as we went further and further, I got higher and higher. I got to a point where I could see the Pacific Ocean, and I was over one cloud deck and under another, and the sun was setting. Pacific Ocean was like hammered gold. The, the, the deck above me was gold. The deck below me was red. I was in this little, tiny little tunnel like a box. And there's the sun, and here's this, here's this, here's my wing, and here's the... And, and like, like a diamond bullet right through the forehead. At that instant, I said, I don't care if I get hit by a truck on the way home now. Pear Blossom Highway is one of the most dangerous roads in, in the country. And, and if I go through the grill on a truck on the way home, it's okay. You know, because I did this. Because I did this. And this was, this was worth my entire life. I've had that feeling two or three times. Never quite as strong as that. But it was crystal clear. It was that sense that I have done something not only difficult, but something that I've wanted to do that I considered to be miraculous, and I've done it well, and, and, and for whatever reason, God let me do it and see it. And now that I've done that, it's not like I want to die. It's not like, it's not like hey, I, you know, now I'm going to start doing adrenaline things. To, it wasn't that at all. On the contrary, I've been very careful. I'd like to live a long time. But it was like, you have not squandered your life. You have, you have done something. You have done something important enough to justify your existence here. You stuck with it. You, you learned to fly and you didn't have any money. I was making $50 a day raking rocks in order to get the flight lessons out there in the Mojave Desert. And in the summertime, raking rocks in the Mojave Desert is a, not much fun. Um, and I did it. And, and that's what I saw in that picture of Armstrong. And I'm sure that's exact, I'm sure that this was the expression I had on my face when I was looking out there at this, at this sunset. In fact, I'm sure that's exactly what I look like. So, Bert read what I'd written in the script and Bert kept breaking down crying. And when I realized, my God, I've written something that's made Bert Rutan cry it's one of my all-time heroes talking about my other all-time hero in front of Dick Rutan, I think who was there, I'm not 100% sure about that, who's a third of my all-time heroes, and Mike Melville, who's another one, and they're all just sitting there listening to me tell this story about this guy, and he can't get through it because he's so emotionally moved. I just said, here's another one of those moments. It's, it's okay now if I, if I go now. I don't want to go now. Natasha apparently doesn't want me to go either, although I'm less clear on why. Um, but it's okay. The other time that I felt it may seem strange to you. The two other times I felt it, uh, although one was just kind of a precursor shadow of it. Actually, wasn't it? After I finished flying there, I went back to Florida. I learned to fly. I, I, I sold it on the... 4th of July, 1990. And I stayed there, and I was 
and I was working as a freelance writer, and I was writing comedy for Kaiser Permanente, the healthcare company. Yes, I was, and uh, I was writing comedy bios of, of their staff. They took good care of their staff, and they would have these annual um, award ceremonies, and, and I wrote videos. I wrote scripts to, to, that would be pre-recorded and played while they're walking up to get their prize. Um, and, uh, and so I, you know, I'd been here for a while and I was sick of the traffic and I'd given up on trying to make movies with Hollywood and, and I just said, you know, I'm going to go back to Florida. I want to do a sketch comedy show. I am actually mailing, literally mailing it in before the internet. I would get a series of questionnaires that I had designed and the people had filled them out and there'd be 35 of them or whatever in an envelope and then I would take them out one by one and I would write a little comedy bio about that person. I'd send it in and they would send me a check which meant I could work from Antarctica if I had reliable mail service. So I said I always wanted to do a sketch comedy show and you know tried to make it out here in Los Angeles just didn't work so went back to Florida. I was here from 88 to 92, went back to Florida in 92, went back to the theater department where I'd been a student from 79 to 81, 82, 10 years earlier, ran into a whole new group of people, ran into the guys that had this um, improv company and a bunch of other comic actors, and I knew TV production and they didn't, and uh, we went to Cox Cable that had a studio in Gainesville and they had a requirement to do public access TV. I don't know if that's still a thing, but at the time, if you put in a cable franchise and you're gonna basically monopolize the content for that area, you had to provide public access. But a bunch of great shows that have been parodies of that. Um, and uh, so we went down there and found another member guy named Jeff who was just a just a great guy and we did three TV shows and I've got them on CD DVD CD and I will convert them and show them to you we did a show called grazing we did three and a half episodes I want to say and <laughs> oh my god I don't know how this happens in show business. It just does. I can't explain it. I don't know how it happens, but it did. And it happens like this so many times. It's, I think there's a line in, in Shakespeare and Love where they talk about this, how it's like everything is about to crash to the ground right this second, but it never actually does. So we had announced the premiere episode of Grazing. And there was a place in Gainesville called the Cinema and Cinema Cafe. It was a big room that looked like a restaurant, and they had a gigantic projection screen, and you would go in there and watch movies. Cinema and Cafe, I think, something like that. You go in there and watch movies, but instead of sitting in rows of movies, you could have, you know, you could have pictures of beer and chicken wings, popcorn, all that other stuff. So you just sit in this room, it was perfect. So we didn't have to pay for it. We said, we're bringing all these people. So invited the entire theater department. There's probably 150 people in there, my new peers, although most of them were younger than me. And the people are filing in, but I'm not there. I'm at Cox Cable still editing the show. And 
<laughs> and let's just say it was going to be a nine o'clock premiere. Next thing I know, it's nine twenty-five. It's a twenty-minute drive back to the to the place from from the studio, and I'm not done editing yet. And I am losing my mind. I'm getting calls from the guys saying, and people are getting really restless here, you know. I said, yeah, we'll, we'll go out and tap dance or do something, you know, because we're leaving here in five minutes. Grab this. I didn't have to grab the tape because it was coming out over Cox Cable. I had to get to the premiere, and Jeff stayed at the studio. He was going to punch the tape when I, when I told him, you know, all right, I'm here. So I get there. I'm, pra I'm a, a, an hour late, and I just get up and say, hey, sorry about all this, um, the delay, and hopefully you'll think it, it was worth it. Uh, I know I do. Uh, so thanks for your patience and uh, hope you enjoy this uh, first episode of Grazing. At which point, one of our team members called Jeff. Jeff hits the button on Cox Cable and the cable feed is projected on the screen and, and there's the show. And I'm in the back of the room and I'm just pacing back and forth. And there, there's a moment that there, if you've ever been in a car crash, you know what this is like. Time really does slow down. And I and time slowed down for me so much. I was that's how stressed I was. It slowed down for me so much that I remember again and again and again. Well, that line just bombed. That didn't get a laugh at all. And what did I? And then all of a sudden you hear this wave of laughter, and I realize I am thinking so quickly that that the gap between them hearing the line and the laughter seemed like 20, 30 seconds to me. So I'm walking back and forth in the back of this. And, and people are loving the show. This is way before I did uh, Eject, Eject, Eject. Nobody knew who I was. I didn't even know who I was. And I'm watching this thing, and I'm watching people really love this show. And I'm watching actors and writers really love this show. And I remember thinking to myself, well, how about that? It's just a year or so ago I had that experience on a glider. Here I am again now. It's okay if I, uh, you know. I have done a comedy show, finished it, aired it, and watched an audience reaction. That's that's what I wanted to do, and I did it. And and that was another moment where I said, "It's okay if I, you know, again, not in any hurry to go anywhere, but I could at least face St. Peter and say, yeah, I didn't squander everything here. You know, I I, I did many of the things I wanted to do. And and it just continues on on a daily basis for me. You know, not not with that power, but." You know, I'm, I'm here in my studio doing a show talking to you people. And it's inconceivable to me. And I got a lot more big plans in motion, including plans with Daily Wire and, and, and big ideas, big ideas. So it actually worked out real well. They did the business thing, which they're very, very good at. I continued to do what I was doing. And then we did a number of shows together to show both them and me that I can tell a story that people are willing to pay for. In fact, it can be the second biggest podcast in the world. That's how good the storytelling is, if I do say so myself. And so they went their way, I went my way. And now I think we're at the point, they, 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 they've already told me they want more of those kind of shows, history shows. But I'm gonna just, I'm, I'm gonna go back out there, talk to them in person, and I'm gonna talk about, why don't we just go long here because none of us get any younger. Why don't we just go long? Um, and we'll see. But um, I will get that thing. You know, it's it's just that simple. I just don't have a CD player. 
get one I'm sure I can get one on eBay for like four dollars somebody's gonna send me one now undoubtedly but I'll get it there and I'll um, and I'll and I'll do it uh, uh, CP Tome says uh, oh it, it is that good I thought you were wondering is it that good grazing was a strange show and and I'm very proud of it but it's on some level it's kind of meta um, uh, the, the premise of this, and by the way, I had just gotten 3D Studio version 2, so I did all the computer graphics, computer graphics opening and computer graphics, uh, you know, uh, bumpers in and outs uh, to commercial, even though we didn't have commercials. And I look at it and I think about it, I haven't seen it in years and years and years, but I know how primitive it was, but at the time it was pretty cool. Um, and the premise of grazing, I wanted opening credits that kind of set the thing up the same way that I Dream of Genie you know, did or the Beverly Hillbillies or whatever. I just wanted opening credits basically said, here's what the show's about. And when I, when I finally show them to you, they're just so primitive. And I think, <laughs> honest to God, I think our output, I'm serious about this now. I think our output resolution was 320 by 240. It might have been a little bit higher, but it wasn't much higher. Um, anyway, so the opening of the show is uh, you see planet Earth and you see this flying saucer heading towards Earth. And then inside the flying saucer in a clear dome on the top are these two cows. And they fly low over the earth and they start dropping remote controls for television sets, just seeding the planet with them. They're just dumping them everywhere like, like pamphlets. And then you see this really kind of low-class kind of fat couple sitting there, cartoon fat couple, you know, real people, sitting on a couch and they're, drinking all this other stuff and they're going they got the remote control and they just keep changing channels and then you do a cutaway to the channel and you'd see a segment and then static segment static segment static and they're not even watching they're just grazing they're just they're just constantly changing the channel and then the final shot is the flying saucer heading back out into the space and the two cows look at each other and nod. It's like, yes, we've done it. We've turned them into herd animals. That was the whole idea. So the entire premise of grazing was that, was that you were watching, essentially watching Cox Cable. You were watching, you weren't watching a show. You were, you were watching any number of shows on a cable franchise. It's like Netflix, but but you know, just just you're just what's next, and the, the the real the part about that that I liked so much was it not only it did three things for us. First of all, it allowed us to do a sketch on anything. The second thing it did was it kept to my rule with that no sketch would be longer than two minutes. Some of them were two or three seconds, but nothing longer than two minutes at all because I'd watched Saturday Night Live enough to know that they had so many good ideas that were good for two minutes and they'd stretch it out to eight or nine because they have live show they got to finish it up none of this was live it's all pre-recorded and so i said two minute limit on the sketch that is the longest we will do and uh and most of them were much smaller than that but because of that because of the format we not only got to do the sketches we wanted to do we also got a way to kind of organize them because we started coming up with our own fictional channels for instance, I think the first one we actually recorded that was any good was a show uh, on the Acid Channel, the LSD Channel, the Acid Channel. And I did a, 
I did an animation of, of like a smiley face button. And then as the animation proceeds, the smiley face button just kind of X's out. He just kind of, uh, and it was a, uh, the acid channel. Dun, dun. And the show that we did on the, the sketch was uh, Pete Herkin uh, came up with a show. <laughs> came the, So the show on the acid channel was called Look at This. And, and it was basically, Pete was a hippie, looked like a hippie. And he's sitting there cross-legged, he's got his John Lennon glasses on. And he says, okay, now, all right. And he says, takes the lights and smashes. Now, now, now look at this. And he holds up the match, and in the background I'm doing all this kind of weird stuff on a chroma key, and I'm showing what Pete sees, and these guys are staring at this match, you know. So uh, we got a chance to just move. We'd eventually do another couple of acid channel shows. We, I'm trying to remember. We, <laughs> we had a channel called Wife Time which was the, uh, you know, the women's programming thing. Uh, we had, um, this was back when 900 numbers were, were big, you know, the, the, the sex call-in numbers. We did a, did a sketch. We had very talented people working with us. We did a sketch with this actress named JoLynn Graham. And she was dressed as a clown and she looked like a clown. She was just great. And the whole thing was a one nine hundred number for for clown sex. And and you know, ends up with her. You know, you got a little lapel thing, and it's squirting the water. And you know, and she's talking about her her her. You know, I'd like to take you. And I, <laughs> I think one of the lines was, yeah, you know, I'd like to take I'd like to take you and forty nine of my closest friends and get in a little car and drive around and around and around and around and around. And we just really, you know, grew into it. And some were stronger than others. Uh, I, I wrote a sketch called Universal Solvent about a cleaning device that uh, consisted of um, uh, was oxidized hydrogen, H2O, and this guy's holding up the H2O molecule. You know, it's covalent bond. It's patented covalent bond. And that was a fun joke if you're a chemistry major. But... Um, the classic sketch, the, 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 the widely recognized classic sketch, uh, was called Sonny and Mick, and it starred my friend Pete Herkin and my other friend, uh, Rocket Smith, Ron Smith, who died not too long ago, three, four years ago, uh, of cancer. The funniest guy I ever met, and the weirdest. And Pete and Ron were both in the improv company, and... And they were good friends, and they had spent so much time together clowning around that they had gotten very, very good at fake punches. And this is what a writer's meeting would be like for us. And the writer's meetings for grazing were one of, the, one of the most fun, just the most fun I've ever had in my entire life. Working with, you know, we're doing three hours, I don't care. Working with those guys on a one-on-one -on -one basis and bringing in ideas once or twice a week and pitching the ideas, that was the most fun I've ever had on a consistent basis. And Ron had a had an uncanny gift. Ron Smith could do a perfect, perfect sound of crickets. I mean, perfect. And so I'd pitch an idea, and I'd finish it. I'm waiting for something. And, and as everybody's like quiet, and all of a sudden you hear this, 
You know, it's like, oh, you're gonna give me crickets on this run, you know? And we're always teasing each other. So here's here's so here's Sonny and Mick. So these guys had spent so much time just passing the time in the improv thing that they just practiced all these punches and they were actually getting really good at it, like stuntman good at it. To the point where you could look at it and say, man, I gotta tell you, I can it really does look like you hit him. And because it was a comedy show, they would take a sip of water and spit it out, you know, you punch and spit it out. So I said, okay, let's go shoot that. And we went up to the to the studio at about one in the morning. It was me, Jeff Michaels, who was the technician, Pete Hurtgen, and Ron Smith. Just the four of us. And I knew what I wanted it to look like, so we had a chair, a wooden chair. Ron was in a in a wife beater t-shirt, clearly with his hands tied behind him. Real noir. There was nothing visible but this pool of light. There was a a a, 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 a light just hanging there, like the interrogation light. And he's got this really hard key light on him, and he's obviously being interrogated. And then Pete is a little bit more put together and they start <laughs> and they start this conversation which I guess we all wrote together kind of but basically what it was was Pete was about to beat the living daylights out of this guy to get a confession out of him and they're both Irish and they're both brothers and Ron is the younger brother and and he's got some information and Pete's the older brother and he's putting on his gloves and he's, you know, and he's saying, all right, Mickey, you know, and it's Sonny and Mickey. So the sketch just consisted of him beating the daylights out of Ron for a minute and a half. We've got this real serious, somber music. And then, you know, they have this conversation about, look, I don't want to do this. You know, I don't want to do this either. And so, they, so, so this instant he throws the first punch, the instant that that first punch hits his face, Ron goes like this, <laughs> spits out this huge cloud of spit. My main job was directing the thing and constantly filling mouth, Ron's mouth with water so that, so that we had this, this effect. And the first punch, poof, like this, and the second punch, poof, and Ron's conserving the water, you know, and he's just pounding the daylights out of him. And when we were editing it, we'd had this kind of somber music, but the second that first pitch hit, I immediately went to uh, an instrumental version of the Irish Irish washerwoman, which you probably know. It's da 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 and we just kept playing that. And so he punches and punches and punches him. And then this is the one thing that the format of the show, the 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 clicking format, this gave us so much freedom. So I did it to the point where I thought, okay, people get it, and I'd hang on to it long enough so that it actually kind of got funny. And then we cut. And that was it. We went to three, four, five, six other sketches, seven other sketches, something like that. And then as they click through the channels, we come back and it's 10 minutes later and he's still pounding the daylights out of this guy. He's a little more rough, you know, a little more ragged. Boom, 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 couple lines, you know. Uh, oh, did you see the Dodgers game last night? Oh, I just go for the Coney Islands. Oh, well, back again. So finally we do this three or four times. We call these running jokes, running gags. <laughs> which reminds me of a thing we never shot. So finally, after we've done this three or four times, now now 
Pete is exhausted. He's covered in sweat. His clothes are completely out of here because he's been been pounded on him. Ron, who's had the living crap beaten out of him for the last half hour, is absolutely fine. Hasn't changed a speck. Pete's just, he's staggering and he punches and by accident he hit the light and knocked the light back and forth and it's swinging and that looked great visually. And then they get to their final line and Ron says something that makes Pete so angry that he hits him as hard as he can and he hits him as hard as he can and that makes Pete go down unconscious. The guy who's doing the beating, he's lying on the floor. Ron is still in the chair, completely untouched. He's just had the living daylights beaten out of him. He's absolutely fine. And he's like, Mickey, you know, trying to find out what happened to his brother. So that was the classic sketch because it just looked so good. It was just, I all the shots on Ron were high shots looking down. All the shots on Pete were from Ron's perspective. I was lying on the ground on the floor of the studio with a camera in my hand and I'm shooting, looking up at him and cut together so well, it looks so good. Uh, and we, we used to love those running gags. We actually had a sketch we didn't shoot called Running Gag. <laughs> I wish we had shot it because it was a, <laughs> It's a horror movie sketch, and, and, and you've got this young girl, and she's in, a, in, in the house, and the murderer's in the house, and we set the whole thing up. We didn't shoot it, but we had it written, and we were going to, you know, we had the dark shadows, and we had the house, and, and the phone call. He said, he's inside the building, you know, and she grabs the knife, and, and, then, and then she, and then you see the murderer with the knife like this, and he goes, starts coming through, he starts coming through the, uh, the kitchen after her, and she goes running out the door out the back door and runs out into her yard and then she, and then we cut and then we come back four or five minutes later and she's running down the street and then we cut and then we come back three or four sketches later and she's running down a country road and then we cut and finally we got to the point where she's at the beach and runs into the ocean she just kept running wasn't being pursued at all the guy never followed her we just we just called it the running gag we just thought it was hilarious we, we did this it was such a weird show. It was such a weird show. There's a place, I think the first sketch we ever shot, there's a place just south of Gainesville called Payne's Prairie, which, is, which used to be a lake and drained because of sinkholes or whatever. So it's big, flat grassland. And it is the biggest nothing there is. It's just a giant circle of nothing. <laughs> and we went out there. I had a, a friend of mine had, who was married, had kids, and he came out there as a family. And then we had three or four of our guys in Scottish kilts pretending to play bagpipes, bagpipes and pretending to drum. And they were walking down Payne's Prairie, and then this family was there watching them. And it was an advertisement for tourism for Greenland, I think. And it's just this is the most ridiculous thing in the world. There's one little tiny family there just watching, and it was a, a tourism ad. We had we just we just had so much fun. Um, so anyway, that's that. Uh, somebody said there are new questions in the thing. I'm gonna refresh and do a quick look. I'm obviously gonna have to do more than one of these a week. I see one new one. Let me see if there's anything else. Bob Neef. Looks like it's Bob Neef. It's Bob Neef. All right, I'll, I'll read this one because it's there, and then we'll figure out what we're going to do about Facebook. Sorry about Facebook. 
So Bob Neef says, I talked to a board certified internist last week for 90 minutes about uh, 1v3RM. Oh, yes, I see. The uh, ivervectin thing that, that you're not allowed to have. The drug, which I'm sure would have been censored, so he uses threes for ease. She's all for it and quit her job because she can't do her job anymore within a big medical machine. How do we fight this? I asked her, why does big medicine and the government hate inter something or other so much? She said that it was because for the government to get an emergency use order for the Victrola, there had to be no other alternative. That I didn't know. So therefore, inter something or other could not work or they couldn't get their emergency use order. Thank you, Bob. So now you know why my wife and I were as sick as we were. Really sick. Uh, scary sick. We were scary sick because, again, I would refer you to Cerberus, which is about this exclusively and this kind of mental breakthrough I had to make me realize what was actually going on here. But we were very, very sick because the antiviral medication that, that my doctor had told me we would use in the event of us contracting this was no longer available in California. And I didn't know why. I just assumed it was sold out or, or, or blocked or whatever. Now I know why. Because, and I did not know this, and this is a critical piece of information. In order for them to get, not to get the, the, the Victrola out fast enough, but in order for them to get the legal immunity that was written into the law several years ago that said that you can sue drug manufacturers for anything except for Victrolas. That's the one thing that you can't sue them for because it's considered an emergency measure. What I find out from Bob through his internist friends is the reason that these uh, non-Victrola treatments were eliminated was because if there was a viable treatment for the unknown virus of unspecified origin, then they would not have their emergency use medication, which means they would not have qualified as a Victrola, which means that there would be legal consequences if there were to be something going wrong with that. Isn't that interesting? I didn't read it. Uh, I thought about reading it. In, um, in uh, Cerberus, the Moving back to America, I keep talking about. It's basically one of the fine people out there sent us, well, they might have sent us some medication that got lost in a, in a terrible boating accident. And as uh, Scott pointed out, I need to do something about that. My, my, my seamanship is terrible. I'm gonna, gonna, gotta get some lessons. But this is uh, something called Mask Plus. And it's a, it's a treatment plan for um, the unknown virus of unspecified origin and which medications to take at what dose, at what point in the progression of the um, malady in question. Now, I did read this in um, Cerberus. This is from this thing that's written by doctors. He says, uh, we're living through a period of time characterized as a vacuum of truth with misinformation, disinformation, blatant lies, censorship, and nefarious intentions being the order of the day. It's difficult to dissect out the actual truth and discern who to trust. Furthermore, it is no longer controversial to acknowledge that drug makers rigorously control medical publishing and that the Lancet, New England Journal of Medicine, and the Journal of the American Association are utterly corrupted instruments of pharma. So I read that during um, 
during uh, the Cerberus thing. Here's the thing I didn't read. I thought about it, and I just didn't. Talking about uh, treatment for uh, the unknown virus of unspecified origin without Victrola's, using all the medications that had been shown to be effective. And they closed this thing by saying, the relentless malpractice of deliberately withholding early effective COVID treatments of forcing the use of toxic remdesivir may have unnecessarily killed up to 500,000 Americans in hospitals. I think our total war dead from World War II was 435,000 killed. Not a joke. Not a joke. And uh, my entire attitude once I got over the shock and horror of what happened last November, a year ago, November 2020, was that, okay, now they're getting what they wanted, and now what they wanted is coming into contact with reality. Yes, this is what uh, he said, do not take that medication. That's what they're saying here, too. They're saying, don't, don't do that one. Anyway, um, uh, so the press labeled it a, you know, aquarium cleaner and a, said with Joe Rogan it was a horse dewormer and all the rest of it. And that uh, may have unnecessarily, when I say unnecessarily, I mean preventably killed half a million people in this country alone. I mean, who knows what it is worldwide. All right, well... This has been quite a adventure and kind of fun, too. Three hours and 15 minutes. I don't know if that's the all-time record, but it's certainly in the top three. And we didn't touch Facebook, so I think we're going to have to do something about this. And, and I'm going to look into um, the mechanics of, uh, you know, the, 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 what is it called, Super Chat or whatever, where you pay money to get your questions starred. Uh, it just seems kind of cheesy to me, but I guess I should, you know, not be so sensitive about these kind of things. Uh, but we did get them all done in um, at BillWhittle.com forum anyway, so that's something. Uh, all right, so I think it's probably time for me to wrap this up because I still have some work to do. I have to upload this show. I have to upload the one I got wrong. I have to do thumbnails and prep for the um, virtue signals that we shot early today. So I'm going to be here for a while, but I love it here. Next to being home, it's my favorite place. And um, and we all owe that to the members of Bilittle.com who, who who pay for all of this stuff. And they pay for it every month. And, uh, and I never, ever cease to be amazed by it. And, uh, and I never, ever will take it for granted. And I, I just, I'm just real happy to be here. And very 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 touched by all of the kind words and all of the sentiments and the get wells and and all of the people who say that this stuff matters I uh, just closed by something I've mentioned once or twice before uh, when I started writing eject 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 within the first year of me writing essays at eject 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 oh that's good news about Alex um, uh, somebody sent me a picture 
and it was a picture of a truck on the Blue Ridge Highway in North Carolina, and it had a bumper sticker that said, read eject eject eject.com. And what's interesting about that is that I didn't sell bumper stickers. Somebody had gone to the trouble to make a bumper sticker on their own, put it on their car, and drive around with it. And that blew my mind. That was another one of those moments. Like, Anyway, uh, so here we are. Uh, there are bigger audiences out there, but not better ones. And in the immortal words... <laughs> It's one of the biggest, one of my favorite moments in show business, too. Uh, there was a producer at PJTV who was the executive producer named Owen Brennan. He's a terrific guy. He really, really knew his stuff. And he left to start his own consulting company. And he gathered us all together, tech guys and on-camera talent, told us how much he enjoyed working with us, you know, and said, you know, I'm gonna, sorry, I'm going to miss you guys. And the last thing he said was, I just want you to know I would rather work with you guys than with the best people in the world. <laughs> Maybe my favorite insult of all time. I'd rather work with you guys than, than with the best people in the business. Um, is that from Roxanne? In any event, whatever it's from, it's I just loved it. All right, gang, that'll do it. Um, I'm going to catch up on my uploading, and then I'm going to hit home. And, uh, and I'm starting to feel better enough, so talk to uh, Doomcock, talk to uh, Gary over at Nerdrotic, see if we can start making some appearances. I think when I release the first episode of the animation, that should make it a little bit easier. <sighs> All right. Uh, good night, Mrs. Nussbaum, wherever you are. And uh, we'll see you next time right here on the Stress Free Lounge.